Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. This podcast is one small part of a larger platform I've created dedicated to offering reflections on Islam, life, and mindfulness. I encourage you to visit makingsenseofislam.com to find a wide selection of articles, videos, other podcast episodes, and most importantly courses designed to distill the complexities of Islam's intellectual heritage into usable and practical tactics and strategies for day-to-day life. I'm also active on Making Sense of Islam social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, where you will learn about what's new and what's in the works. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. My guest today is Mubin Sheikh. Mubin is a former Muslim supremacist turned undercover operative for the Canadian Security Intelligence Services and Royal Canadian Mounted Police, RCMP, Integrated National Security Enforcement Team, INSET. Mubin worked multiple classified infiltration operations online and on the ground. The last investigation became public when the RCMP in the Toronto 18 terrorism case of 2006 arrested 18 individuals. In total, 11 aspiring violent extremists were convicted after five legal hearings over four years in which Mubin was the main fact witness. Mubin has a Master's of Policing, Intelligence and Counterterrorism, MPICT, is an external subject matter expert SME to the command staff of CENTCOM, the United Nations Security Council and others, and trains police, intelligence and special operation forces on related topics. He was extremely involved with the ISIS social media boom, having infiltrated their networks online. Some of these individuals went on to be targeted by coalition forces, some investigated by the FBI, and others, as well as those who were convinced to leave the group completely. He also deals with the foreign fighter file, including returnees and rehabilitation at the international level. Mubin is also the co-author of the acclaimed book Undercover Jihadi, and is featured in a permanent exhibit at the new International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., under Preventing Terror. This is a very special episode and conversation for me. It's on the long side. It's a little bit shy of three hours. I did contemplate splitting up the episode, but as I listened to it again and reviewed it, it just picks up steam every few minutes. You know, Mubin is adding, like, this new nugget, and you just want to, like, I just wanted to listen to the next 10, 15 minutes so I decided to drop it all as one, uh, you know, one file, one one upload. I did not edit much of it, so this is very raw. And look, uh, Mubin's work, as you've heard from the intro, is on the controversial side. A lot of people will take issue uh, with what he's done. However, I encourage everyone to listen with an open heart and open ears. There's a lot of very important information. Uh, Mubin has been through a lot. I'm happy to call him a friend. I am very grateful that he uh, gave me the time, really unfiltered, was was very open about about speaking. As you hear towards the tail end, we could have gone on probably for another couple hours. Inshallah, we'll try to catch that maybe sometime in the future for a part two. But please enjoy, without further ado, this awesome conversation with Mubin Sheikh. Mubin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Assalamu alaikum. Alaykum I've been uh, waiting to do this for a long time. So even though we're recording this, this is really like for me a one-on-one conversation. So since the first time I've met you and I have accidentally stepped on the landmine of 
counter extremism <laughs> and counter radicalization uh, have been blown up a few times doing that. Uh, I'm like, yeah, you know what? I really need to reconnect with Mubin because I have a lot of questions. Welcome to the club, brother. <laughs> so I thought that actually, uh, as I said offline, by the time people will have uh, heard your voice, they would have had a, a, a in-depth introduction with a timeline. So one of the things I want to just jump right in, I want to ask you a question and see if we can talk about this, is the role of ideology in uh, radicalization extremism. I know that uh, you've mentioned before, it's not the only role. We admit it's not the only role. It happens to be my concern because as somebody who who has a mosque and has people that attend you know weekly classes daily classes i'm concerned with that i'm concerned if i have anybody in my in my mosque that you know expresses ideological views that are extreme so i know that for me it's important I, but i know it's part of the puzzle and i thought we would just start by talking about that because there seems to be for some reason confusion about this there's a lot of criticism from other muslim groups about ideology etc and let's just see where that question, you know, takes us. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Thank you. Great question. Um, I love this question. Um, <clears throat> I'm not going to disparage any of the Muslim groups that uh, have their opinions. And they, you know, and it's fine. Everyone has their opinion. But frankly, I believe that this is coming from a place of defensiveness. The Muslim communities in general were weak in their response to terrorism. Um, my argument is very simple. I mean, as a Muslim, if there was a group that was going out of its way to quote the Quran, to dress in the sunnah of the Prophet and do what they do in my name, I would feel that it is an obligation for us to, to, to refute their ideology, their arguments and whatever else. So I'm trying to lay the, the foundation here. I think that the communities have been weak in their response. And there's a number of reasons for this. I want to make excuses for people as well to give a situational understanding of why we're even having this kind of um, discussion or why it is even up for discussion that ideology is a significant factor when it comes to violent extremism. Uh, Post 9-11 environment, there's a siege mentality. Muslims already feel that there's a lot of scrutiny on them. There were surveillance programs that were uh, implemented, really just targeting the Muslim community. So with, from this environment, I can understand why Muslim communities are defensive um, and really don't know how to respond to the, you know, the, not just the attacks, like the physical attacks of terrorists, but the attacks on the Muslim community by not just extremists, but also, uh, you know, hostile non-Muslims. This is the environment from which this this is this is coming. Now, when it comes to ideology, there are there's a certain way to um, convey the sentiment. So, for example, I use this one quote. This is by Peter Neumann. He's, he used to be with the International Center for the Study of Radicalization, and his quote is that ideology without grievances doesn't resonate. Ideology without grievances doesn't resonate, doesn't make sense, doesn't appeal. Grievances without ideology are not acted upon. Mm. Grievances without ideology are not acted upon. Because ideology is action-enabling idea. It's not just a, a set of beliefs. Right? We call that religion, or we'll call that you know beliefs. 
uh, ideology is something very specific, right? It, it is an action-enabling idea. So that's one quote. Another quote that I use is sometimes ideology or sometimes religious ideology is a driver of violent extremism. But at other times, just a passenger with other psychosocial factors at the wheel. Mm, mm. Okay? So I do this to, to insert into the dynamic here, into the discourse, that ideology has a role, but we're trying to contain that role. And we're trying to restrict it in a particular way. So, and we can we can get into that, and I'm sure we will, but I wanted to just kind of, you know, state from the outset that that this is how we frame the discussion around ideology. And then we can go into um, other experts who have written on these topics, and you know, it's not really my place to completely dismiss what they've said, of, you know, because I might disagree with some of them. But uh, you know, you'll have uh, Scott Atron is a very, very well-known psychologist. He's been doing a lot of good work, and their approach is a very, a very psychosocial approach. I would say that number one, they're not really trained in religious ideology for them to really be able to appreciate the role that ideology plays. Number two is when you see many others who comment on this level who say, uh, well, ideology, you know, these guys were not very religious. Okay? But again, that's not the test. right? Subscribing to an ideology doesn't mean you're an observant practitioner of that idea. Okay? Mm. And when we look at, for example, the people who went to go and join ISIS, okay? there were two individuals who were traveling together who, when they got caught, they were from Britain, they had Islam for dummies in their bag. Okay? Yeah, I remember that. Now, there's only two guys with one book, but many people use this to say, look, all these guys are going and they're carrying books like Islam for Dummies, dot, dot, dot. So they don't know Islam, right? Mm. And, and this is actually a misrepresentation because just because two guys have the same book doesn't mean that, you know, everybody else that is going to join ISIS is similarly as ignorant as they are. Okay? And like I said, the point about, <clears throat> the point about just because, I mean, you don't have to be a practitioner of the ideology. You just have to subscribe to one or more of their core tenets and khalas, you're uh, a member if you will mm. you subscribe to the ideology just like we say with people who who have uh and i mean i can even quote them as an authority mi5 i mean the british domestic security intelligence agency themselves released a report saying that the proper study of islam is actually a protective factor against extremism and terrorism is that report, maybe not to cut you off, is that report public? It's, a, it's public, yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you were to even Google MI5 report radicalization, uh, you'll see a 2008 article that comes up. I believe it's The Guardian, uh, and, and it, it's excellent. It's an excellent um, uh, report. And basically to show that, because a lot of people conflate religion with ideology as well, right? Sometimes there is a, often there is a conflation and a mistake. And then finally, I'll say on this topic of, of how the notion of ideology is covered is when we is when you have a lot of uh, social scientists or psychologists or others who say, rightfully so, 
that um, part of why individuals join these groups is because of a sense of meaning, belonging, and identity. Now I ask, are these three things separate from ideology? I can tell you, I mean, and I'm just speaking for myself, of course, but I would be interested to know what other Muslims feel as well. Islam is our paradigm. Islam is our framework through which we view the world, through which we view our individual selves and our and what we understand our role on earth. All of this comes from the paradigm of religious belief. So sense of meaning, belonging, and identity, where does that come from if not from your religious views or your ideology? Right? Like I'm Canadian by citizenship, nationality, but you know, anywhere I go, you know, I will if I'm a Muslim in Canada, whether I'm a, I'm praying with Muslims in America or Britain or Africa, we're gonna generally pray the same way because that is a unifying ident not just identity, but unifying practice that we all subscribe to. So so when people say this, meaning belonging and identity, I I'm reluctant to separate that from ideology. So so that's how I would basically frame that initial uh, volley on ideology. So I understand you mentioned a, a little while ago about, you know, there are some people, uh, and we know there are some people that just have different opinions about this that are uh, quote-unquote practitioners, experts. Now, I understand Western governments uh, not wanting to engage on the issue of ideology, especially like the American system. I mean, it's very, very difficult to speak to people in Washington about this stuff. I understand that. Uh, I don't necessarily blame them. I think it's a mistake, but but I, I understand where they're coming from. But what I don't understand is I don't understand how Muslims, uh, and here I'm talking about just thought leaders, not necessarily people that are engaged in the kind of work that you're engaged in, which inshallah I hope we can talk about. I don't understand how they can negate the importance of ideology. I mean, if somebody came to me like after prayer, just for an example, and this is not too, you know, too theoretic. I mean, stuff like this has happened. And you know, uh, tells me something like, what are we going to do about all of the kuffar? You know, or like a statement like that. Which, you know, unfortunately, you know, we grew up hearing those type of statements. As an imam, I'm going to be like, oh, okay, you know, block everything out, sit down with this young person and figure out what's going on. Like that, I instinctively know that that's a problem. It doesn't mean I'm going to call the FBI. I mean, I also feel as an imam, I have a moral obligation not to do that. And I hope maybe we can talk about that as well. But I recognize that something's off kilter. Uh, something is not right about what this person is saying. Like, why are they saying and why are they framing it this way? Why do you think some Muslims just want to reject the importance of talking about extreme ideology within the family of Islam? Yeah, this, this has frustrated me as well. And uh, I agree with everything you said about the mistake that the U.S. Uh, government makes when it comes to you know, not dealing with, with religious belief at all. I think also, and something for Muslims to keep in mind is, and this is what got me really, is the Prophet ﷺ himself spoke about the Khawarij at length. Sure. I mean, there are many, you know, there are many reports of, the, and and I have made, you know, and I'll, I'll get into how. In fact, what I've done is I give, when I train the U.S. military, others who are, you know, doing their thing, I, I have a, you know, I teach Islam 101. I have an extremism and terrorism section, and then often if they're if the soldiers are going to a particular area, 
I will, you know, do like a country profile, right? Basically, just to help them understand the situations that are there. And what I do in my, I kind of, I introduce it in my Islam 101 because I have, you know, this chart and it shows you have Sunni Islam, Shia Islam, then you go to Ithna Sharia, you go to the it sects, then you, then I have in Sunni Islam, the four schools of thought. And then I put two, well, two boxes by themselves without a line connecting them <laughs> to the four madhab. And one is what I call Wahhabi or Wahhabi because they understand that. And, um, I put actually Ahmadis also up there. So I would consider both of those a sect of Islam, but I, I don't consider them in, you know, Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, technically. I know, I'm sorry. I'm actually not sorry. <laughs> I know it's a technical theological thing. But what I show here is actually another line that says Pawadi. Mm. And, and then in my extremism and terrorism uh, presentation, which is like almost three hours, at the end of it, I actually start with, so when we say counter-messaging from the Islamic perspective, I actually start with uh, a snippet from uh, Sheikh Muhammad al-Yaqubi's Refuting ISIS video. And then in on the slides, I show, I have about 10 ahadith uh, on the khawari and what the Prophet ﷺ has said about khawari. So I explain to the students, this term khawarij, I'm going to come back to it later because he has that, you know, Arabic fatwa, fatwa mufassala fi ithbati anna da'isha khawarij wa al-qital umwaj. So I, I take out khawarij and I explain to the students, you know, this is a sect that came early in Islam. These are the things that they did. Uh, you know, there's one reference about uh, how the two things that they were known for is, one, hijacking entire cities and using the citizenry as human shields, basically. Mm. And number two was to encourage the young people to leave their families in secret and to join them in their land, which, of course, theirs is the only Dar al-Islam. Everywhere else is Dar al-Kufa. And this was, I mean, exactly what, in fact, the way it, it finishes, I believe this is in Ibn Kathir's, uh, one of his, Milal uh, Nihal, I'm not sure, I mean, but... The, the fact, the point was, is that even it explained some of them we brought back and they remained upon and they were guided and they were basically rebuked is what they call it. And they remained upon Istiqama and then others who fled back again and, you know, became losers, blah, blah, blah. This is pretty much the ISIS returnee situation that we're dealing with today, right? Some who came back, who were counseled, who remained firm and others who either went back or continued with their extremism when they got back. So so j just to kind of show that, um, you know, they will they will never touch religion. And in fact, you know, I had this conversation with the then, initially they stood up, the Center for Strategic Counterterrorism Communication. This is a unit that was run on, out of the State Department. It's now called the Global Engagement Center. But even at that time, I was having this conversation. I said, why can you not, even ask these people questions like, okay, I get it. You don't want to deal with religious ideology and it does look bad if a state department employee says, you know, yeah, but you know, the prophet, the prophet said this, you know, shouldn't you, you know, trying to basically evangelize or almost do dawah, you know, yeah. for, for Islam. And, and I asked them, could you not even ask questions of people? I thought maybe, you know, because what they were doing is they were going into um, conversations that extremists online were having and then basically dropping down into their conversation basically saying hello 
we see you here and we just want to say X, you know, and I thought you could tell them, you know, do you think this benefits the religion when you do things like this? You know, just asking open-ended questions or things like that. And they were like, we don't even want to touch that. So, so they're, they're hamstrung in one sense, right? Mm. Um, they, they, they can't deal with that stuff. And then just as I was saying about how, why our own people, Muslims are, it's because again, like I said, the, in the Hadith, there's so much on the Khawarij. There's so much on the role of religious ideology. You know, we, I mean, you know, we hear so many ahadith, right? They will, their prayer, you will be, the Prophet ﷺ is talking to his disciple, to the Sahaba, and saying that that you will belittle your prayers and your fasting in front of theirs. Think about that. Yeah. And, you know, I thought, you know, this remained theoretical for me in a, for a bit until the Al-Shabaab attacked Westgate Mall in Kenya. Yeah, I remember that. Well, in the middle of the attack, two of them stood up for Salah. <laughs> in the middle of the hijacking, mm. they stood up for their Salah. So mm. it, it shows you that this is what kind of fanaticism that they go into. And then, you know, we can go into, <clears throat> excuse me, the other, you know, ideas of otherizing, if you will. So like this idea of kufar, kufar, right? And I mean, full disclosure, you know, I used to be like this, right? I used to be hardcore Salafi, Takfiri. Yeah, we're right? going uh, to get into that. We're going to get yeah, into that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I wanted to say just that that whole idea of, uh, you know, these are these are um, contributing ideas. You know, this uh, everyone is kufar. It's, it's black and white thinking, right? So these are some of the things that I try to introduce, into at least my training, to show people that, in fact, the role of ideology is very real. Uh, you, you're basically denying our own Islamic history and our own Islamic sources. And na'udhu billah, making a liar out of the Prophet ﷺ when we say that ideology has little to no role in violent extremism. So my, my take, just to add a couple of, of sentiments to what, uh, what you just said, is my take is, is two. One, I don't think people in the English-speaking Muslim world are actually well-read in Islam. In other words, like a 360 uh, well-read. They might know a lot about uh, certain things, but when you tell them, like, by the way, have you like seen the section of the Khawarij and like the Hadith like books? Like these are Sahih Hadith. When, like you said, that we're not talking about something abstract. They would be surprised that you know th those are very sound. Um, uh, hadith, not just that, but then the Prophet ﷺ gave us a roadmap of how to deal with this problem. That's my thing. Is like in the Hadith, in understanding the Hadith and the early Islamic history is our game plan of how we are to deal with it. So one, they're not well read, and two, I think what's what's and what I'm talking about uh, intellectuals, by the way. I'm not talking about the average Muslim. I'm talking about intellectuals are not well read, and then number two, I think it's this fear of now I have to look at my brother, my sister, and deal with like an internal problem. And I think it's always easy to just, no, 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 we don't have a problem, we don't have a problem. The problem is like outside. It's like any family, you know, like, no, 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 my kids are fine, my kids are fine. It's the other kid who's the bully, like not my kid. And I think it takes a little bit of um, insight to be able to, to see that. So the reason I wanted to begin with it is, uh, I think this is sort of one place where our uh, some of our work sort of aligns. Uh, you, you certainly have a lot more experience. Uh, but 
I want to segue a little bit into uh, why or your take on... Now, I want to be very careful. I don't want to use the word CVE or PVE or because I know that the, now I know that those words... <laughs> bad mean, word? Well, well it's, it's not a bad word. It, it's a word that no, no longer has a, a set meaning. So when you say that word in public, it's going to mean a hundred different things to, to a diff, hundred different people. But the work on uh, addressing the problem of radicalization and extremism, uh, how important do you think that work is for, for Muslims? Yes. So, of course, th this is the controversial thing, right? CVE, uh, countering violence extremism, PVE, preventing violence extremism. Um, and obviously, it was so highly politicized. This is one of the reasons why I think, you know, activist Muslims just didn't want anything to do with it. Not just the uh, denial that a lot of the Muslim communities uh, continue to be in, unfortunately, and like you said, it's it's much easier to blame outside of your group than to admit that you have a problem in your group. And and it's it's you know it's it's interesting because the social scientists have studied this right in group out group dynamics. You know when a member of the out group does you know X crime, it, it will never be looked at as it will be looked at as worse is it versus if a member of the in group committed the same offense. Hmm. Right? It's like oh it's not as bad. Oh, they did it? Oh, well, you know, this is the worst thing that could ever happen. So, you know, Muslims ourselves, we fall into these traps, uh, psychological traps, cognitive traps. Um, and so, yeah, you know, CVE is basically, it's the formal and formalized version of speaking out against radicalization. Simple as that. And do you think it's important for for Muslims that that uh, are able to to deal with it to be involved, or do you see it as problematic? Sorry, I forgot that second part. No, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, yeah. For, so for sure, it is. I would say it is the obligation of every Muslim to defend Islam and Muslims from extremists and from hostile non-Muslims. That, that's the way that I look at it. It's a very basic, simple idea. Because these people, these extremists, like I said, if they're going out of their way to defame Islam, to disfigure Islam, how would how is it possible that our response is, well, I don't have to respond to that, or I don't have to say anything against them because I'm not responsible for what they're doing? Of course, of course, we're not responsible for what they're doing. But we are responsible for at least defending Islam and defending the Prophet ﷺ when these people run around dressing in the sunnah physically, wearing, waving a flag with the seal of the Prophet ﷺ on it. I, I, it just, I don't understand how an, uh, uh, any Muslim could see that and not feel the need to, to have to respond. So I would say that at the individual religious level, definitely without doubt, you should at least in your heart you know, using that hadith about if you have the power to do something with your hand, then do it. If you can just speak out, then speak out against it. And even if you can't do that, at least know that it is bad, a bad thing in your heart. And know that this is the lowest level of iman. I think we can apply this to, you know, condemning extremism and terrorism. As for the practice of it, this is where it gets a little, you know, dicey. Because I don't like the idea that we just open the door to anybody and everybody uh, trying to do it because you have people who are not grounded in Islam, uh, who are you know not practicing Muslims or uh, you know otherwise 
uh, able to uh, to not just articulate the response, but be you know be actually effective, right? When it comes to their condemnation. So you know, random you know kid in school or like these are not these are not people that that we would want to bring into the practice. When I talk about the practice, I mean people who are in positions of influence, in positions of power. Um, that they should be doing something. So whether it's your, for example, you're an imam and you have a mosque, you know, you should have something, in, you know, built within your youth program or something that deals with this, okay? Because it's 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 not so much. I know people's criticisms and and I get that. I just think that they're it's very short sighted, uh, you know, because by introducing these things into the into the masjid or Islamic center or whatever it is, it is not only to most importantly, it is to educate the Muslims about what Islam actually says. In fact, you know, the one of the things that I say in this context of CVE is one of the reasons why, because look, you have over 3 million Muslims in the U.S. If you were to add up all the people that have been arrested on terrorism charges, okay, you're dealing with a percentage of a fraction, a fraction of a percentage, fraction of a percentage point. Sure. You're really dealing with like point zero 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 something, whatever. And I always say the reason why there is such a low level of terrorism by Muslims is because Muslims are actually already engaging in PVE. And that is called Islam. That is just teaching regular Islam to people. That's what tells you that stealing is not okay, killing is wrong, you know, all these things. So when we talk about CVE, and we and we just bring into that specific a uh, specific note on, you know, ex extremist group, I think you know we're just doing Islam a favor, really, by by incorporating this into our formalized experience, if you will. Yeah, I'm glad you said it that way. So when I when I do the work in the mosque, I, I like the way you've articulated for me, this is normal. Like I have to have responses to these questions. So I read up about it. I read about, you know, how, you know, the major themes of extremist groups, ISIS or whatever to understand how they think. And then I start thinking, OK, no, that's not right because this hadith says this. So I practice myself in understanding that mentality. So when I identify it, I can help, you know, deconstruct it. Uh, and then everything was fine, and then and then one day one one lady came up to me, and um, she came up to me after after Friday prayer, and she was in tears, and she said, "Can you please uh, promise that you know you, you won't share our children's names with the local police department?" I was like, "What? Why? Why would I ever do that?" And then she told me, um, you know, she told me about what her understanding of this type of subject matter was, and I was like, "Look, I, I have a moral obligation not to do that." Uh, all of our conversations in the mosque are privileged. When people come to me in confidence, it's complete confidence. And, um, you know, that's haram. That would be haram for me to do. I said, I'm concerned with just making sure that people, anybody that expresses these ideas, understands that there's no home for it in Islam. And that's when I started realizing, okay, these acronyms have been so loaded, have been so hijacked by different, you know, political groups and activists that it's just not going to work. Uh, that being said, uh, a lot of my work experience in this has been overseas. So I haven't really done much work in the U.S. or in North America. And like you, because of you know confid confidential state uh, agreements and things, I can't really divulge a lot of, of the details of that. But I have been uh, focused much more in Muslim-majority countries. 
uh, where you know they are torn apart by you know this type of extremism. Okay, so ideology, a little bit about prevention. Now, in the beginning of this episode, people will have heard your bio and a little bit of your, your sort of your timeline. I want to visit with you, thinking about ideology, three like decision points that you had. And, uh, you know, with, and I ask with all respect and, you know, feel free to, to not want to answer. That's fine. But I, 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 there are three in, moments in your life that I'm interested in understanding what your thought process was. One is when you uh, considered yourself a quote unquote extremist slash, you know, whatever the words you're good adjectives are going to use. The second one is when you de-radicalized at the time when you were in Syria. I'm really interested in Syria. And the third is when you decided, you know, to fight the good fight. So I, I see that for the purpose of our conversation, three really important points in your life. I'm very, very curious as to what your self-talk was, you know, what... I, I know these are complicated things. You can't just, like, summarize it in a couple minutes. But because, I, because I'm interested in ideology and, you're, and you identify ideology as important, I think it's also important for listeners to understand a little bit about the thought process of what took you from, from one side to sort of the other side. Okay. Um, so, so for those of you who were paying attention uh, to the bio, and there's a lot in the bio, obviously, that you know, can, can be expanded on. But basically, uh, you know, I was a teenager. I had a house party. I got caught by my uncle. Uh, was guilt trip. Became. I was humiliated. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed uh, because I had, you know, let my family down because I let all these kufar into the house, doing their kufar things that they do. And me, and my grand, my uncle made, made a good point of that. Uh, you know, people, Mubin, people pray in this house. They read Quran in this house. And you brought these people here to this? You know, I'll never forget that. Man, it really made me feel bad. Then I left with the Tablil Jamaat for four months in the summer of 95. Two months in India, two months in Pakistan. In Pakistan... This was your Jamaat, own decision to do that? Place. Yes. So, so, so growing up, uh, because Indian background, right? Indian, uh, Indian background, uh, influenced by Deobandi, you know, institutions. So when I was growing up, the place that my father would go to was the Tablil Jamaat Markaz. Okay. Right. So I grew up already as a child. I remember, you know, sleeping over, you know, doing the whole thing that they would do there. So that was already kind of, uh, put into my system. Uh, if you will, like that was the milieu from which I had grown out of so when i look back or when i stop to think what do i do now i'm going to look for what is familiar okay and so that's how to believe jamaat became the so good good point there good interjection uh so i decided okay i'm gonna go in fact when i told my family that i was gonna go four months they laughed they actually all laughed out loud hmm. because they knew the way that i was and they thought there's no way you're gonna do this and my grandfather was actually the only one who, who said, no, you know what, you know, son, you, you can do it and, you know, uh, you know, get, get closer to Allah and, you know, use it in a good way. So I went, spent uh, India and Pakistan, uh, spent 40 days in Saharanpur, like some very nice, you know, important places, uh, I guess, in the Diobandi tradition anyway. Then in Pakistan, they sent us to, uh, they actually made me the emir of a jamaat. When we went to Faisalabad, we were there for 10 days. I was the emir. 
Um, and interesting. Yeah, and there was a sheikh actually who was in the in the jamaat, with like proper Deobandi trained alim. Uh, very very nice brother, lovely lovely brother. Uh, and uh, anyway, just a fond memory of he would ask me all the time, Amir Saab, can I go to the bathroom? <laughs> Amir Saab, can I? He was very you know disciplined in that sense, right? Because we know this, so whoever the Amir is. Anyways, then uh, in the later part, we were sent to Quetta in Balochistan, Pakistan. Unbeknownst to me, uh, the Taliban are, you know, they run that place. They still run that place. Um, because the Tablil Jamaat is apolitical, they don't, they don't care for politics. They don't interfere in the politics of other groups. Uh, the Tablighis are happy to let them, you know, do what they do. They're Jawla, they're Gash, they're six-point Bayans. They don't care. Nobody talks against the Taliban, and Taliban don't talk against them. So uh, here I'm in the masjid thinking, oh, look at all these Jamaats that are here. And it wasn't Jamaat. It was all Taliban. Whoa, so whoa. when I went in Jawla, uh, I, you know, I went. Uh, Jawla is, you know, when you go about sure. the local area talking to Muslims. Uh, I remember the store owner guy saying, why are you coming to us? Like, we're already Muslim. You know, why don't you go back to Canada and convert Canada, right? Uh <laughs> So one of the things, as we were walking around, I had this chance encounter with with a bunch of actual Taliban fighters, where they were just sitting in the shade. You know, they had all these weapons in front of them, and I thought to myself, "Cool, right? Young Muslim guy, sure, yeah, seeking, right, seeking a new identity, needs an identity that resonates with his religious views, a uh, little bit militant. Boom, here you go. These guys were all of that in one package." Uh, so I became enamored by, I thought, oh, look, these guys are like Sahaba, right? Mm. They, they probably look like how the Sahaba dressed, you know, and, uh, they were, they were fighting the good fight as I understood it. So right? they're, they're out of central casting. Yeah, right, right, right. Definitely, definitely. So the uh, image, I mean, they the, the, that image for you is just like, whoa, this is what I've been looking for. In every way. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. and sure, yeah. shawls, big beards and shalwar kameez. Which you know, I'm I'm sure the Sahaba were Shawar Kamis, right? <laughs> um, and uh, the point was is that you know I you know because the guy was telling me through the interpreter that you know we are you know we are doing jihad you know we we have been doing jihad in Afghanistan for you know many many years you know? and I was very I was a novice I didn't really I knew about the the, the jihad in Afghanistan. Um, that was, you know, that had happened previously, 79 to 89 in Canada. I mean, a lot of Western countries, because they were supportive of it, uh, they they allowed a lot of people to go from the U.S. and Canada to go over and fight, and it wasn't a problem. Sure. And in fact, you know, when, when these people came back, nobody involved themselves in terror plots and things like this. Like Afghanistan war returnees, they generally did not engage in that. But generally, there were some outliers. You had some guys were still, you know, itching for a fight of some kind, but overwhelmingly they did not. So, uh, so I thought they were mujahideen. You know, these guys were like mujahideen, and uh, and so this is when I I started to become more uh, cognizant of the wars that are being fought in the Muslim world. Mm. When I came back uh, in in the fall of '95, uh, in '96 the war in Chechnya started. And so I became completely infatuated with the war in Chechnya. I wanted to go to join the fight there as a foreign fighter. Okay? 
I fantasized about it all the time. I was trying to get contacts to find out how I could go there because it wasn't, you know, it's not like bombing the U.S. or bombing Britain or something. It's like you're going to Chechnya to kill Russian soldiers. You know what Western government is going to be opposed to that, right? Yeah, it was that a little was bit more. It's my, a little bit more clear. Yeah, right. You can kind and of then, understand the conflict in a clearer way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, and then uh, you know, in uh, two thousand. Uh, so I should add in uh, just going on my journey here. Um, sorry, I want to stick to your question. So you asked that that point when. Well, I'm. So I'm that's the your thought process. Like, okay, yeah. you 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 see, you have this encounter where you see power in the name of Islam. I, you know, for me, when I was around, you know, we're almost the same age. For me, it was seeing what I call my first smart Muslim. So the first time I saw an articulate English-speaking Muslim, I was like, whoa, you know, Islam is not dumb. Islam is smart. Mm. You know, for you, it's like, wow, Islam is strong. It's like not weak. So I understand that. But I want people that are listening to understand, like, this is deep stuff, man. Like, growing up in this, in this continent is not easy for us. Yeah, it's it's yeah. even harder now than when we were growing up in, in, in you know in the in the nineties. But what else like were you thinking? Like why why leave Canada and and go fight? Yeah, I mean You're gonna leave so, Tim Hortons, man, and just like go <laughs> go to Shishen and just uh pick up yeah. an AK forty seven? Yeah, I, I'm sure I didn't think it through fully. <laughs> like like many people, right? Like most Ninety-nine percent of these folks who went over to join ISIS, I'm sure they learned real fast what a bad decision they made. Mm. Um, but you know, again, I am. What's happening is I'm. I've grown up in this in the Western world. I don't know because again, Indian family, pretty strict, um, and you know the the whole idea, the way that Muslims, I guess, a lot of Muslim parents think that if I have to be. I have to be strict on my kid, otherwise they will lose their Islam, right? And and I understand that concern that that parents have because I see now, you know, how things are. I mean, when when I was growing up and going into going to the madrasa that we had every day for two hours, you know, the Indo-Pakistani madrasa. Sure, yeah. You know, it was, you know, I mean, it was traumatic on one level. Uh, it was abusive on another level because they would they would abuse you and beat you and and do all these things. But I mean, at least I learned um, how to read Quran. Um, I really appreciated that because later on it, it helped me, of course, in life. But you know, just trying to navigate for me, it was trying to navigate my place as a Muslim in the West, and and how. I could be a Muslim in the West and not, quote unquote, sell out my faith. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or basically not become a, you know, a non-practicing and I've left it. I've left the religion. So I think the balance, this is this is the, the dilemma that Muslims are having today, Muslim youth and Muslim adults as well. D did you, know, you how how much sorry, Mubin, at that time, like ninety five, ninety six, were you feeling I don't want to live here? Uh, I feel like dirty living here. I'm better, you know, I'm superior than the people living. Did you have those type of thoughts? Yep. Yeah. I mean, so when you, you know, you, you know, I call this, you know, Muslim supremacism, you know, like white supremacists, wow. Muslim yeah. supremacists, yeah. you know, that, that we are, you know, we're better. Like, obviously we believe, uh, uh, you know, part of our Islamic view that Islam is the religion that has been chosen by Allah. Okay, great. We accept that. But does that necessarily, you know, and then 
I'm not going to get into the theology of it, of course, but like in terms of what makes a person a good person, right? Uh, and, you know, Sheikh Habib Ali Jifri, he's got this the great lecture series about uh, humanity before religiosity. Yeah. Uh, and this is something that I think we don't have, really, we don't learn in our in our environment, in our community. So certainly I grew up with this view that the kuffar, and, and that's a catch-all phrase that we use for anyone that's not Muslim. In the UK, you know, the way that they use it as a slur, it's basically the, the N-word, but it's the K-word. Right. Yeah. Uh, they even call them. They say, "Oh, these cults, these cults." Right. It's used in a very derogatory way, and 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 the way in which it does uh, engender, um, you know, uh, it's almost dehumanizing in a way. Right. I mean, kafir and kufar is a technical theological term. It's not a label Absolutely. that you go around calling somebody and you say to my neighbor, "Ya kafir, ya kafir." <laughs> you don't you don't do that. Right. Sure, so yeah. so but. Growing up, the way that, I mean, the strict Indian Islam, you know, Deobandi, anti-colonial sentiment, mm. right? There was this this feeling, right? That we are better. They are dirty kuffar, right? They're dirty. They're below us. They're inferior to us. We are superior. You know, uh, our, our Islam is the solution for everything. You know, like this kind of thinking, mm. uh, you know, that people, and again, even when I say that, I believe yes, there are you know things that are in Islam that have obviously benefit for everybody, but we can't just use these things. You know, uh, just yeah, I think it was yesterday somebody saying that you know uh, Sharia is the solution for the world. You know, and it's like, what does that even mean? You yeah, know? yeah. Uh, so, so anyway, so so I did grow up with this this idea that kuffar is all non-Muslims and they're all bad, and and I just cannot be a Muslim living in the West. Or living in this society, and and I think this is what a lot of Muslims are going through. You know, I remember coming back from that trip in '95, and I was now, you know, very strict. You know, I had started to grow the beard. I had was wearing my black turban, you know, my my thob, and it made it worse. It made it worse because now I'm telling everybody that hey, I don't want to look like you. I don't want to be like you. Um, you are, you know, I'm better than you, right? And mm. and so that's when I really started to feel that I don't belong. And I think what what I was doing here is I was self marginalized from society. Mm. So you know, when we talk about marginalization in society, sure. which is a real thing, especially in Europe, where racism is just through the roof in in many countries. Um, we when you start to, I'm not, I'm not saying you know you should not wear the beard and the thobe and you have the right to do that here in the West, right? And Alhamdulillah for that. But I don't. I for me personally, I don't. I don't. I don't find that it's useful. I think we are giving the wrong message to the to people, thinking that Islam is some foreign Arab religion, right? When you dress like them, when you dress like Arabs from, you know, the way that Arabs dress, or again, what is Arab dress even, right? I'm not talking about the putra and white robes. I'm talking about this idea that you know the muslims of old they had beards and thobes and turbans so today we must wear beards and thobes and turbans and you know like i said like if someone to do that alhamdulillah but uh i don't think that it's uh you know uh, a thing that everybody should be doing it not it, nor should it be something that you encourage especially young people to be doing uh because they will find themselves if they thought they were marginalized you ain't seen nothing yet
opportunity, nothing. Yet. So you, and you're, you're actually just creating hardship for yourself. So. So you're you're living with this frustration and marginalization up until around 9/11, correct? So nine. So let's do this block. 95 to nine to 2001, mm. right? And so I, I talked about 96, the war in Chechnya. I should mention that I got married in 1998. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Uh, okay. It was a girl that I actually knew from high school. Uh, Polish, she's Polish background. And I left to go four months uh, in after my last year of high school. Okay, and they were, and my friends were still in their last year. Uh, so when I came back from, from India, Pakistan, I came to see my friends and they were in total shock when they saw me, right? Because going from this easy, easy going kid. You're the house party you know, guy. Yeah, the house party guy, that's right, yeah. that's right. And, and, you know, this is actually a very common story, right, uh, of uh, what people do is when they find that they've been doing these un-Islamic things, they feel so guilty that they believe the only way to fix their broken self is to go complete 180. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure. Effectively, if this is a mistake, effectively forcing Islam onto yourself. Yeah. And, and Islam will break you. Islam will break you. You yeah. can't do that, right? And this is the mistake. That's right? actually a, that's actually a hadith. That the hadith. Yeah. That's right. Don't overdo yourself in the religion, or else it will overtake right? you. Yeah, it will overtake you. So, a lot of people did this, and Tablil Jamaat was actually like famous for this. You know, mm, of mm. turning people's lives around. It really was criminal gangsters, mm. like murderers, like really bad people. They went and they had a positive experience, and Alhamdulillah, they they were okay. Uh, but generally speaking, it, you know, you have cases where it doesn't turn out okay. A person might become even more extreme because they have these unresolved underlying things. And now, you know, you just take it to a whole other level. So, so you got married. Uh, so I got married. Uh, and, and what I say is in my thought process, what this did is it, it, uh, it met a major need of mine, uh, intimacy needs, right? This is another struggle that for young people growing up and you're not allowed to have a girlfriend and oh, you can't even look at women and you got to keep your gaze down. But when I keep my gaze down, all I see is legs, and <laughs> right? Like you know, how, what, how are you going to survive? I will never forget. You know, I was, I said to myself, you know, I am going to, I'm sorry for your other listeners. No, uh, please. I, I, called, I said, I'm going to be a born again virgin. Okay. Okay. And uh, and basically, I was going to become pious and respect women and not be this. And I remember being on the subway, underground subway, and keeping my gaze on the floor, looking at everybody's shoes. You know, you can only look at your shoes for so long. And then, just when I would look up to see what station the the train had arrived at, I had already broken my your you know, vow. Yeah. Nazar you know, <laughs> times, right? So. So it's very so when I say intimacy needs were met, this is very important because no, dude, man, this is very serious. I mean, we laugh, but this, this is, is a very serious thing. Sure, this absolutely is very serious. And you know, I even made I make the joke because in my presentations, what I do to, for the military in my extremism terrorism, I use screenshots that were taken from some of the platforms that ISIS members were like the so guys who had gone over. On Ask.fm, they would basically set up an account and to encourage other young people to go and join them, 
would basically encourage the asking of any question. So brother, what kind of, you know, uh, what kind of route should I take? What kind of phone should I bring? And then there's this one slide that I put up and it says, are there good looking women there? <laughs> Everybody laughed, right? And then the answer that the guy put there is, Ittaqillah, you know, fear God. Nice, okay. Now, I use that because to show that these are young boys. These are young guys who, these are natural things. It's natural for us to feel this. Sure, yeah. Right? And, uh, and so, how do you deal with that? And so, I, I would make the joke that is it any wonder that these guys talk about virgins in paradise, yeah, yeah. which you get after blowing yourself up? And, you know, I would make the joke, it's, you know, I don't mean it, but I make the joke that I say that, well, I might mean it a little bit. Um, I say to the audience, I said, you know what, sometimes these guys just need girlfriends. Okay, I know, I know people aren't going to like that, but yeah. I, I mean, what I mean to say is that people need an outlet. That's the source and of young, their frustration. Young, yeah, yeah. And especially young people, when you're telling them that you can't have any relations until you're married. But you can't get married until, or at least the parents of the girl or the boy or whatever, they're not going to give their, generally speaking, parents are not going to give their 16-year-old daughter to marry a 16-year-old boy who's still in high school. And, and now you're worried that if you give them license to have sexual relations, they're going to have a kid. And then who's going to take care of the kid? You, you have teenagers raising children. So there are so many problems with this, with the, with the way things are set up for young people in the West, right? For Muslim young people. Mm. So this is, I think, and it's a larger discussion. I think it really, you'd have a, you need to have a whole different, you know, subject just on this discussion yeah. on this, but Alhamdulillah, 1998, you know, I, I told my father, you know, I, there's this convert girl, I want to marry her. And she knew nothing about Islam at the time, nothing, zero. And, um, I remember she came to my house and my, my dad, you know, my dad was just, my dad's very smart. Uh, he didn't ask her any fifth questions because, you know, Islamic law, because anyone can pick up a book. Well, I, we don't suggest you do that, <laughs> picking up books. <laughs> but, you know, generally speaking, you can learn fifth. It, it's, you know, it's easy to learn fifth, but it's not as easy to learn how, how would you respond in X situation? Sure. You know, sure. or living with relatives or relatives coming over all the time or things like that. So alhamdulillah, long story short, she passed my dad's test. And I remember the dua that I made. I said, oh Allah, if she is good for my deen and my dunya, make it happen for me. If she's not, then remove her as far away and quickly from me as possible. Alhamdulillah, Allah accepted my dua. Alhamdulillah. And now, you know, she's like, she's more pious than I. Really. Um, so we get married. That calms me down a lot. And then in 2001 is when 9-11 happened. Mm. So I have already kind of, now I'm sorry, I should have noted that I left the Tablighi Jamaat, Tablil Jamaat, and what had happened was there were there was a group of Salafi brothers who would come to our masjid all the time. And they would always, you know, target the young guy. And I will never forget uh, him asking, you know, like he always asked, brother, where is Allah, right? Where is Allah? <laughs> so these were the, the types of questions yeah. that they would ask, you know. And to be honest, at that time, I had not had that traumatic moment in my life, the house party, yeah. getting caught. So whenever these guys came over, nobody really cared. You know, it didn't resonate with us. 
right? But after, after the house party, after going to India, Pakistan, meeting Taliban, yeah. then when I came back, I went to their musalla. And they were just like shocked when they saw me because they were like, you know, because they know my father was very involved in the community. Yeah, and yeah. like, it was like a score, you know, to get the son of, you know, one of their main guys. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, so, so, and so with these guys, I became more, it was more, uh, you know, legalistic, very, you know, the way that Salafi brothers can be, you know, foolish things. You know, I, I remember becoming too legalistic, you know, too nitpicky. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I remember when I had kind of because I, I remember being in Salah, and in I remember being in Qiyam, and looking from the side. You know, how is this guy <laughs> holding his arm? <laughs> or in Tashahud, and is he moving his finger or not? Yeah. And I'm and I'm. This is so. Which, but being right? if you think about it, it's like another version of that arrogance. You know, it's a, it's another version of that supremacy. Like, look, look at all these poor Muslims. They're not praying right. I got to teach them. Oh, brother. A'udhu billah. May Allah forgive me for the times that I was like that. Very yeah, arrogant. So, guilty uh, as charged. We've all been yeah. there. We've all been brother, there. Brother, I, Allah, I, I made amends. And, you know, um, I made takbir of my grandmother. <laughs> oh, my you know, God. I, was, I know. I was, you know, so foolish. Because they were, you know, in India, they have their ors. Yeah, where the you know they have the darga of the sheikh, and every once in a while they would bring you know they bring the poor, the local poor, and they feed them. Yeah, you know, in for honoring the sheikh to send rewards to the sheikh. Oh, you know, in the Salafi world, this is this is shirk. Yeah, sheikh number one. Shirk. Yeah, sheikh number one. Right? Yeah. And, and and this is one, of, and I you know, and so. But you see, I'm trying I mean, to. You know, what I'm trying to get at is the the arrogance thing. I mean, of course, I'm not accusing you. I, I you know accuse myself. No, I admit it. I was because yeah, when I was when I was around that same time, for me, it was the ikhwan. Like they tried to recruit me, uh, because I was you know active with MSA and all of that, and and um, you know slightly different experience than what you had, but the same. Uh, ideology the same thought process were like look you're better you're special right you're on you're on the haq they're not you know you gotta right. you gotta take over the mosque you gotta take over the school you gotta take right. over the student government you know it's all of this like you're gonna take over because you're right and you are right. entitled you know we are entitled to have like that victory and i want people yeah. to understand as a, as a young as a teenager essentially you know 18 to like 25 i mean you're still a teenager and then a young adult that can leave a really deep mark on you. Um, and I, you know, I've, I said things that I regret, and I did things that I, re I regret. I'll, uh, you know, I, I don't want to... May Allah forgive us, man. Ahead. Yeah, I mean, I mean, both of them. But I, I don't want to... I will jump ahead just for a moment. Yeah, please, close please. That point. But this is my... When I went to Syria, right? Uh, after 9-11. So let, let's do that. So, so I got married, and then what had happened is because I had calmed down, and then 1998, I had my, 1999, I had my first child. Of course, his name is Mujahid. Okay, right? of course, yeah. His name is Mujahid Yahya because you know, name your children after the prophets and uh, righteous people. So, so of course, my kunya became Abu Mujahid, right? Perfect. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so it calmed down. And then when 9/11 happened, that's what really turned me off from this whole extremist idea, thinking mm. that it justified flying planes into buildings. And, uh, and, and this is what really, you know, I won't spend too much time on that, but basically 9-11 happened. Um, 
And uh, it was terrible, obviously. I remember thinking to myself, please, God, don't let it be Muslim. Uh, we all we all had that prayer. We all had that prayer. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, you know, these people did what they did. And we can see the, the fitna and the facade that it caused around the world. Um, and I decided, I said, you know, I'm Indian Muslim. I don't, I don't, I haven't studied Islam or Arabic or anything. No formal study of Islam. Uh, I need to study Islam you know, because it's how is it that these people came to this conclusion? And I am, <clears throat> I am, you know, supporting them. I believe that they are on top, and yet look at what they did. So I looked around for different places to go study. I was too old to study in Saudi Arabia. By this time, I was, you know, twenties. Uh, Egypt, sorry, at the time was too expensive for me. I don't know how that happened, but it is what it is. And then it just so happened, you know, my father, they were doing, a, they have a masjid and they were building the dome and the minaret on the masjid. And two of the contractors there were from Syria. And mm. one, and they heard that I wanted to go and study. And one of them said, brother, I have a house in Syria that nobody's using. My sister lives just around the corner. Why don't you go and live in my house? I won't charge you because you're Talib al ilm And um, uh, he, Allah knows if he is a descendant of a Sahaba, but the last name is Al-Qulani, mm. which was the name of one of the Sahaba. So, Allah alam. In fact, three doors down was a family with the last name Sheikh, like my last name. Interesting. You know, so it was, it was funny. But anyways, um, it's when I got to Syria that I really realized. Now, even then, I was still had this naive worldview, right? That I'm going to go to the Muslim world and basically live happily ever after, right? Sure. Because yeah. what else do you need? The Adhan is being called five times a day. Yeah. And little do you know that, you know, in the towns in which you're living, there's six masajid. So the Adhan actually is not, you know, it goes on for about 40 minutes because, yeah. you know, one is like five minutes later than the other. So... I had all these even, you know, uh, ideas about living in the West. Now think about it. At, by this time, my beard is even longer. Mm. Okay, it was like a mid-chest length beard. Okay. Black turban, and robe. And my wife is in niqab, right? Glow in the dark white lady, right? <laughs> uh, in Syria, okay, like brown Indian guy yeah. and glow in the dark white lady. Living in Syria, not even in Damascus, outside in, in Al Kiswa, Kiswa Bala, mm. right? Like 20 minutes by Sarviz uh, to Damascus. And, um, and, and again, I go through a number of things are happening here. So, so number one, I realized that there aren't many people that look like me, right? <laughs> I, I, I learned later on that the government doesn't like, the government does not allow you basically to grow a giant beard. Like, I met guys who I saw with giant beard, hardcore Salafi, and then I saw him a little while later, and the beard is, like, right down. Mm. And I thought to myself, like, what, what happened, brother? And uh, he, he's just like, they looked at me like, and he one guy said, he goes, this guy doesn't know. Ajnabi. Ajnabi. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't know anything. <laughs> and he told me, he said, the government tells us to cut our beard. Okay. I thought to myself, what? And I remember going to one of the ma'ads there, Badr al-Din Hassani, Ma'ad Badr al-Din Hassani. In, uh, and the guy there told me, the sheikh there told me to cut my beard. And I was hardcore, like, you don't cut the beard. Yeah, and yeah. I told the sheikh, I was like, are you crazy? Like, I, was like, I said to him, sheikh, the <laughs> <laughs> and, 
nobody talks to them like that over there. I get sure, that, yeah. right? But you don't talk to me like that either, right? That's the attitude that I have. And, uh, you know, I told him, I said, cut my neck first, then you can cut my beard. That's the attitude that I had. Yeah, yeah. And so I got into a big fight with him, and he kicked me out of the mud. He said, you can't come here. Mm. Uh, so so I ended up going to, you know, Damascus University. I did the Arabic there, whatever. And, um, um, oh, to show you again how I was, the extremist, the arrogant mentality, I eventually, so I did some, uh, you know, I did, a, you know, eight, nine months of Arabic first, and then I applied for the Tekhasus program, the degree program at um, Jami Al-Fatah, uh, which is Masjid Bilal over there, that's the Al-Azhar's campus, if you will, um, in the Usul al-Din uh, degree program. And then I remember, so, you know, black turban right black turban who wears the black turban the shia the shia yeah. right so the brother they were asking me they're like are you shia are you shia i was like no no they're like why are you wearing the black turban and then i would get right like that idea that i know the hadith yeah it's clear it says the yeah. prophet did this yeah i gotta do it <clears throat> And then I remember, you know, uh, all the students had flocked around this guy. I'm gonna, I have to refer to him this way. Um, I don't even remember his name. I don't even know which one it was. Stubble on his face. Stubble. Like not even a beard. Like a five, five, a five, five o'clock shadow. Like, I, you know, it's like not even a five o'clock okay. shadow. More like 3.30. Yeah. You know? And I said to him, I'm like, who is this guy? You know what I mean? Like, no beard, no nothing, this and that. And they're like, he looked at me, and he's like, you don't know who that is? That's the chief Qadi of Syria. MashaAllah. And I was like, oh. And that was another reminder to me that I might have the outward look, but inside I'm empty. Wow. Inside I'm empty. I have no ilm. Wow. I have no ilm. You know, and, and this was some of the things that I asked myself, you know, that, that, you know, this insistence on that outer appearance. And you can see the mistake with this, right? It's yeah. outer appearance, outwardness, appearance only. Mm. Not not to say only. I understand that not I know a lot of sometimes people criticize me, they say, Mubin, you know, why do you why do you slam people who wear the thobe and the beard and this and that? And again, like I'm just expressing my personal view, right? I'm I'm not, you know, my, my brother in law is the is a like observant tabligi. He's got the beard and the thobe and mm. all that, and, and good for him. And he is a wali of Allah, wali of Allah, okay? Um, but, you know, he cannot do what I do, where I do it, Sure, right? sure. Uh, and so anyways, so, so these were some of the things that I saw while I was in Syria, my own limitations when it came to my understanding. Um, and then uh, I think the biggest, so one major thing was, you know, it's funny, one of the, the intro exam, if you will, one of the questions that they asked me was, Sidi Mubin, a Salafi anta am Sufi? Wow. Straight up, are you a Salafi or are you a Sufi? Because if you answered, I obviously I knew. They don't, because the Salafis, you know, you know, may Allah bless them and guide them and bless us and guide us all. They are too argumentative. When it when it comes to this, is one is one way of, of at questioning your sheikh yeah. about like wanting to learn, but it's quite another to 
be in his face. Sure, yeah. Uh, and I saw that. I saw that in the classroom. You know, there was, uh, and the sheikh just like, they school all these kids, you know, who come there and try to think that they're smart. Yeah. You know, and I remember a few guys who definitely, you know, hardcore types from Tunis and uh, Tunisia, Libya, a couple of them. And I remember them like arguing with, like arguing with the sheikh. And I just thought to myself, huh, like I, I've never seen this kind of disrespect. Anyways, this is when I was really introduced into Sufism, the idea that, uh, you know, the turning inward, looking inward, what is the state of your heart? What is the state of your mind and your brain? Mm. You know, how you think about other people, how you think about yourself, how you think about Allah. You know, what is your connection to the Prophet ﷺ? MashaAllah, you grow a beard and you wear a robe. How many times do you send salawat on him? What do you think is more important, growing the beard or giving salawat? Mm. Oh, I'll just put that out there because even the I'm sorry to say I'm not sorry to say even Abu Jahl had a beard and a thobe okay sure. so you know uh, but Abu Jahl didn't do salawat I can guarantee you that you know so yeah. um, so anyways uh, so being introduced at least theoretically to Sufism I, I didn't really join a tariqa until, until later maybe we'll get into that when the whole terrorism case happened uh, but but basically, this is where I, I ended up meeting a sheikh um, and sitting with him because a lot of the shiuk, what they did, what they would do is they might teach at the mahad one day, they might teach at the University of Damascus another day, uh, and they might also have private lessons in their home other days. So this is what I what ended up happening. Uh, the sheikh, he was the sheikh of tafsir. I can't remember his name, you know, um, but he his subject was tafsir and um, he would then, because when I introduced myself, you know, I said, uh, Abu Mujahid, in Canada. And he said, Afwan, Abu Mujahid? <laughs> so, you know, I was like, I'm Abu Mujahid from Canada. And he's like, excuse me, Abu Mujahid? And he, and he smiles. He's like, Mama Anal Mujahid. Wow. The meaning of Mujahid. Yeah, he just right into me, you know, and I said, Oh, Mana Qital. He said, La, Qital, Yusawi Qital. Mujahid. And he was like, what is, yeah, fighting means fighting. Qital means fighting, but what does jihad mean? What? So I think, I don't know if he was like, you know, tasked by the government to look for guys like that or whether he thought it, it was his own personal responsibility he had. Mm. But whatever it was, he basically, after class, he said, you know, uh, blah, 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 welcome to Syria. Um, you know, I have a class in my home on Tuesdays. A lot of, there are other foreigners who come there, because he had a little bit of English as well. Mm. Uh, so, so basically, I started to attend his classes, and this is where he really went through the Quran, went through all these things, sat with me. I explained to him, you know, these, this is what people say. This is the thinking that people have. Um, he actually, even this whole, because I said to him, I said, Sheikh, you know, I live, I live in the center of the Kufar in Canada and America. And he even questioned me on that too. He's like, why do you say Kufar? You know, what, what do you mean? And so he even every little word that I used that was divisive, that was harsh, he would step in to correct me and say, well, this is a better way to understand it or to explain it. Uh, you know, so going through the Quran, all the ayat, all the verses that these people use, um, 
he would he would just demolish their interpretations, showing you, here is the hadith, here is you know from the seerah, and you know like the way in which our usul works, right? Yeah. Quran, Sunnah, and so on and so on and going, and then even referencing medieval books like you know 1600s and 1500s, and showing you that this is consistently the view of Islam and Muslims. So when when people now come in to say no, the meaning is this. He would always say, anytime somebody does this, you take them right back, square one, and you show them, okay, who believed this interpretation of this? Because, and, and so this is where we learned the importance of the Sanad, right? The connection to the Prophet, right? So when we say that this is the interpretation, this is not just some sheikh reading the scripture and giving his view. I mean, there are places for that, but this is a received revelation right that we still receive it to this day through scholars who are the inheritors of the prophet sure right so so when he says that who is this person telling you this interpretation look to see who that person studied with who are his shuyu not one share who are his shuyu and and that's why today like this is why when we fight against extremists we we say all the time like you know osama bin laden he gives a fatwa yeah, I'm like okay, so it's, a, it's a very foolish way of looking at it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, who made him a mufti? Who are his shuyukh that he studied with and he got ijazah from to give fatwas? Nobody and zero. So there, that shows you. Yeah. So anyway, so this was this is how my my thinking got really changed while I was there in Syria, sitting with the sheikh. You know, not just seeing the reality of of the country that I was living in. Because it was a bona fide police state, still is Syria, you know, under that guy, um, uh, and and uh, you know, it's funny. Another side note: people called me Taliban more <laughs> in Syria than I was ever called Taliban in Canada. Interesting. Because if you're in the Arab world and you're a brown Indian guy, you're Taliban, and if if you're Arab, you're Al Qaeda. Right? That's how it worked. Yeah. So, um, so anyways, that that was that was like your you know your the undoing of of those years of trauma. Now I want to fast forward to the other major decision point. We know we know sort of the factual story, but I want to ask you about the the Toronto eighteen you know case. Now, up until now, there's a lot of people. That have that can that can sympathize with your so I, I sympathize with what you're saying you know in different shades but I was there I actually also was able to go to Syria after I think you were in Syria just you know to spend weekends and and things like that I, I was able to sit with uh, Sheikh Mustafa Turkmani um, who's Imam Zaid Sheikh and Sheikh so uh, and I attest you know that Syria is you know a very beautiful place and and we, you know we pray for for peace in in, in Syria but the decision like to go the path that you went after that. I want to I want to understand you know what motivated you or or how you I don't want to use the word justified, but what's like what's the process, the mental process, the I, the thinking behind like yeah, I I as Mubin, I I need to do this. I'm I'm going to infiltrate this group and this is a good thing to do. And and how do we connect that to the story we've been hearing up until now? Yeah, so so I, I spend my time there and I basically got fed up, right? Um, 
of being in Syria um, for a number of reasons. There were just I realized that maybe Canada is not such a bad place after. Okay. Right. Um, because again, that mentality was this is Kufar, this is Kufar. I can't resonate with this. I can't relate to them. I can't you know be happy living here. And this is a the wrong mentality, right? To have. And so. I basically, I said I had enough. Um, I came back to Canada, and the first week that I have, I'm back. In the front page of the newspaper, a guy has been arrested, Momin Khawaja. Momin Khawaja was arrested in connection with the 2004 London fertilizer bomb plot. Okay. He was in league. He was in cahoots with a bunch of uh, Britons um, and uh, British citizens who were planning bomb attacks. He was Canadian. He was a contract employee with Department of Foreign Affairs. Uh, So he was in the government structure. um, And uh, he was building a detonator for them. Okay. okay? Using his knowledge and know-how. He got arrested. Um, it was in the courts already, and now I'm reading about it. And this is a guy Momin, that you, you know. You know this guy. Momin Kuwaja sat beside me in the Quran school that I went to as a kid. Okay. The madrasa that I taught. Uh, that we spent, you know, I was in that madrasa from, you know, since I was five years old. My father ran the organization. Uh, I was dragged down all the time, right, like from five, and we spent up till the age of, I think it was like 11, 12, Mm, right? mm. Um, So I remember him from the age of 8 and 9 and 10. We used to play with those Hot Wheels cars, you know, that every kid, well, most kids, uh, at least in the North American context, uh, played with, and his brothers, and and we were friends. And, you know, and the family was a good family. The father actually uh, taught in Saudi Arabia. He was a very, very knowledgeable historian, PhD in history. Good family, good family. And so when I saw this, I was shocked. I thought, how is this possible? Right? This must be a mistake. Mm. And and so I saw a reference to the Canadian Security Intelligence Service in that article. And so I phoned them up. Right? I I went to a thing, remember the thing called the phone book? Yep. Um, yeah. you know, for the dinosaurs that we are, there was a thick phone book in which at the back of it there's all the numbers of the government uh, departments. And I saw Canadian Security Intelligence Service, Toronto region. So I called them up. Now, I'm going to say this now because even the judge in the case, you know, said this out loud. He says, who does that? You know, who calls the intelligence service, mm-hmm. right? Especially in, in, in a non-Western context in the Middle East, for example, you don't you don't even utter their name, Yeah. yeah. right? Um, but, you know, we're in a different context here, right? And so... Um, so the so what happens is um, uh, what happens is that the the intelligence service it's it's out of their hands by this time, okay? Uh, it's gone to the courts now, right? And the way it works in Canada is security intelligence does the security the Canadian Security Intelligence Service does the security intelligence component, and the federal policing component is done by the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted. In the U.S., the FBI does both. Yeah. In the U.K., uh, Scotland Yard will do the policing, and MI5 will do the security intelligence. Okay. okay. So they separate their. Uh, their so, so, so this case, by the time you come back, is pretty advanced. 
it's it's advanced yeah so a moment kawaja's case it's it's in the courts now yeah so that means that CSIS has gone through it okay the rcmp has gone through it collected the evidence brought it forward and presented it in court sure which and now and now it's it's basically so in by march it would have been i don't know if he was it was in court or but it was well along that process yeah so when i called CSIS up CSIS was like well it's it's out of our hands it's got nothing to do with us at this stage mm. but the fact that you're calling us about this case somebody will somebody would like to talk to you about that yeah. right and, and that was their way and it makes sense right obviously you've had this big case and now somebody calls them saying hey i know the guy yeah. and like five minutes later some guy in like yeah. a trench coat shows up <laughs> well it was a, it was an hour and a half later, oh, there you actually. go yeah <laughs> yeah it was it was funny because you know i thought to myself they're gonna say okay well you know how was how was your friday uh you know maybe we could have a beat or whatever but they they wanted to get down quickly they're right? like stay so right I, there we'll be we'll be right there yeah, i can imagine the operator ran over and said yeah we got a live one we got yeah, a live yeah. one so anyway so so yeah the guy came you know and a uh, white guy of course and uh uh you know shows up in his Ford Taurus looks like a government car you know he's all wearing a nice suit right so definitely this is the government agent right yeah and so he comes in and uh we sit and we chat and I basically go over my life story with him right okay. I explain to him you know what I went through growing up and where I traveled to and so on and so forth now I want to note something when I went to Syria one of the first things that I did is I registered with the Canadian Okay. Okay. Very smart on my on my part. Okay. Because later on, when they were validating me, basically checking to make sure that I'm legit, and uh, one of the things they did is check at the embassy that did this guy come in. Because, you know, because obviously, you know, like to run a spy is a very serious thing, and you don't want a guy who. So even on the lie detector, the polygraph that I took with them. One of the things that they asked me was, did the Syrians send you here to spy for them, right? Wow. I was just like, what? And he's just like, yes or no only, please. <laughs> so, I was like, no, no. And uh, so anyway, so I sat with him. I explained to him my story. And he basically, the way he said it to put it to me was, you know, we would like for you to consult for us. We want you to tell us who you consider to be the good guy or the bad guy. And why? And and we like the, how you have one foot in both communities or both worlds. Uh, this is helpful for us. And of course, what they needed was access to those communities, people that they might have been trying to find out what's going on with them, what are they about. Um, and and so I I thought I could do that, you know, because I had the credibility in the community that people knew who I were who I was, um, and. And so basically, that's what I started doing. And uh, they basically put me on a number of taskings. So uh, before the Toronto 18 case, and I know we'll get to that, for almost two years, I was with the intelligence service, working other cases and other investigations. And it's only because the Toronto 18 became an RCMP investigation that it found its way in court and that I my identity became known and exposed. So up to that point, I was anonymous. Nobody knew who I was my identity was protected in law so i was one of the one of the things that i was sent to do was um, infiltrating password protected chat forums, for example uh places where obviously the government wanted to know like what's going on in here like who's 
So basically, who's doing the recruiting, who's being recruited, and what is the mechanism? So, you know, for example, I can tell you that in some of the rooms, you know, looking at somebody who may not have had much Islamic knowledge, you know, the, the predators would jump right on these people. Sure. Right? That whole, you know, so that was one way and then talking to them and then delivering the ideology and seeing how they responded to it and then bringing them into a private chat and then talking to them there, finding out a little bit more about what they want to do and what they're about, where they live, uh, and then ideally going and meeting, right, physically, right? And like, you know, you were saying back, you know, in our days, you know, things were, I mean, it's not even that, I'm talking about 2004 and 2005, right? So this is before Twitter and Facebook and, and the usual social media sites. So it was, you had to do a lot of legwork, right? You had to get out there, talk mm. to people, see people, meet people. Nowadays, everything's online and, and, and much easier, faster, uh, and more unstable, I would say as well. So going into these password protected chat forums, finding out what was happening there, uh, in the human infiltration section, that was basically, um, we're watching somebody or we're interested in this guy, tell us what, what's going on with him. Now, what was interesting is there are different levels, right, of, of sources, okay, people who are sent out to collect information, right? You might have like passing list, passive listening posts, I call them, uh, people who are just there, and if they hear something, they go in and, you know, push it up, up the chain of command. If you but my role was different. Um, I was an independent fact checker, basically, okay? So... The service already had received information about a certain topic or a certain person, but they needed somebody who was a, a, a trusted source, right? Because sources are given different degrees of reliability. I'm telling you, this is exactly like Hadith sciences, okay? Uh, think about the Hadith reports as raw intelligence reports. Mm -hmm. And we look at chains of narration. Where did the information come from? So you have your Rijal. Who is saying this? Is this a reliable person? Yes, it is. Was this person? Yes, they were. Okay, then this information is reliable, right? So, so they would have received information from other less reliable sources. But then when the more reliable source confirms what they know without being told what they know, then obviously what they know is true, right? And so that's how they would do it. So that was my role. So they would never, ever tell me that this person is involved in X. Okay. Or this person is connected to Y person. They would just tell me, this is the person that we need to, you know, we need information on this person, you know, find out. So that's what I would do. So I would go, I would find out, see what was going on, see if I could, you know, do my thing to see. It was investigation, right? It was to see you know, what this person believes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, to give you a perfect, uh, or to kind of illustrate how the good guy and the bad guy, right? Because here in the West, you're allowed to believe that Muslims are supposed to believe in the Khilafah and we have to see to the establishment of the Khilafah. That's not illegal. It's not illegal in Canada to believe. But some of the people that believe that ended up gravitating towards more extreme groups. 
Sure. So it probably makes sense for us to just keep tabs on what, you know, what these people are saying and what travel they might be doing because we don't want Canadian citizens, you know, going to a foreign country and engaging in subversive activities there because if they get arrested, now you need to provide consular services and, you know, it gets very detailed and technical, you know, so when somebody is over somewhere doing something, it makes sense that the government kind of keeps track of what they're doing. So you know, another before, example. well, before, yeah. before you, you know, I want to just ask you, sorry to cut you off, but in the beginning, your decision to do this, did you, did you think, I mean, you're criticized for this. You were and are criticized, you know, uh, for this. And, um, you know, looking at those criticisms without, you know, just objectively, how how did you? Yeah. Again, I don't want to use the word justify, but what was the no, self talk? It is, it is justified. The word is justified. Um, <laughs> well, and, and, I, I don't I don't want to use it because I don't want to <laughs> accuse you. So I just want you to just I just want to discuss it with you. It, and, it's you, fine. It's fine. It's fine. I've I've you know I've been taken to task on this you know many <laughs> times, and so it's 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 perfectly fine. You know I I spent four years in five legal hearings giving testimony. I swore on the Quran every day in that courtroom. So help me Allah that I will tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Um, and so in the beginning, when I was, the fact that I even contacted, I thought to myself, <clears throat> the reason why I'm doing this is because I've seen the way the world is. I mean, I know I had just gone to Syria and it was a, you know, a micro experience, if you will. But I had decided by then that I like I like my country. I like Canada. Canada is very good to Islam and Muslims, and I need to protect that. I need to make sure that people aren't trying to harm the society, harm Canadians, harm the Canadian government because they are good to us. Okay, so that was the first level. Uh, as I went on, and I'll be I mean, and I'm, I'm telling you this, and I've, I've mentioned this other times as well. I remember being with the group, a group, I think it was the Toronto, Toronto 18 group, in the masjid, praying salah, and thinking to myself, Ya Allah, what am I doing? Look at what I'm doing. I'm in the masjid, but I'm spying on these. And it would always, you know, that thought would always come. Hmm. Because I have a conscience, right? I'm not a sociopath, right? And you want people to have this internal debate and dialogue. And every time I had this feeling, I was always overcome or uh, overwhelmed, if you will, with this feeling that this is the greater good what we're doing. Because the answer would always be, yeah, but Mubin, look at what they're up to. Look at what they're planning on doing. How can you turn a blind eye to them? Because, look, most people in the community, you're not going to come across a terrorist. Okay, they don't walk around with signs, I'm a terrorist, you know, report me, right? Uh, most, the vast majority of individuals will, you'll never come across this. But I'm not the va I'm not the average person, right? I'm a spy who's been directed to go and look into this particular group, okay? So, obviously, something is going on with the, I mean, very rarely was there nothing going on, okay? Uh, where somebody, now let me just, I want to tell you another part of this. Uh, actually, I should just do this. So talking about how do I justify, right? One day, you know, the uh, controller says to me, okay, Mubin, this imam 
and he gives the name of the imam. Um, is he with the Taliban? Now, this is rare because they usually would never identify a suspicion that they would have, right? But he's like, is he with the Taliban? I thought to myself, I know this imam. And I was like, what? I was like, no, I, it can't be that. I always, Allah knows, right, what people do in secret. This is also another thing that people don't realize that people, you know, Muslims, you know, they give a front of I am a pious person, I am a sheikh, this and that. But Allah knows your secrets, and sometimes intelligence agencies also know those secrets. Um, and so I went to the sheikh, and I talked to him, and I wasn't even trying to, like, investigate and find out. Like, I did have in the back of my mind, it's possible that he's fronting, that he's an imam and this and that, but secretly he's sending money to the Taliban. Who knows, right? I'm talking to him, this and that, and, and I laughed at him because I realized what was going on. This imam was a Deobandi trained imam, okay? And, you know, there's always competition between those imams, like who's going to get the imamat of this masjid and who's sure, going to teach yeah. in that madrasa. And what this guy did is he started teaching language class. And he started to make a lot of money teaching that language class. Okay. And suddenly, the Taliban accusation. And uh -huh. guess what? She even said, the agent said to me, Another imam called us about this imam. Wow. <laughs> saying that this guy was whatever. And then I realized that, wow, they're using the intel service to get to get to that imam, to, to wrap him that's, up in some trouble and, and get him. That's got to be you know? one of the lowest things I've ever heard. <laughs> you know what? Um, and this, wallahi, is one of the reasons why I said, you see, this is why I do what I do. This is why I'm doing it. Because we know, you know, the ayah of the Quran about, you know, uh, uh, when news comes to you from a wrongdoer, verify it, yeah. lest you cause harm unknowingly. So if a believer is coming to you with news, you're supposed to, as a good Muslim, believe them yeah. up front. But I realized that a lot of times you can't even do that, right? Because especially where I was, I was seeing the, the dirt behind the scenes. So are there other examples, Mubin, like that, where you've, like, quote-unquote, saved somebody? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. M multiple. You know, I said this even so many times that how many people, just in the Toronto case, okay, because I caught a lot of flack for it. Again, these people, you know, who say this, they are in such denial. May Allah, may Allah. Okay. Some of them, I'm going to pray that Allah forgives them because they're just, they just don't know the fact of the case. And, and they have agendas and they believe that everything is a conspiracy and and I've maintained from the beginning that entrapment in this case is literally impossible, literally, because the plot had already been decided upon by the group. The group had already come together before I was involved. They already selected the location of their training camp and visited the training camp. So when you when you get involved, involved, when you get involved, it's already happening. You're you're like it, just brought already, in. Like, can you like? That's right. Confirm and what so, we've we, what we've been following. You know, Subhanallah. The way that the way Allah works, you know, I I, I love it. You know, to see these are also the the signs of Allah. You know, the way that He works, His wisdom. Um, that is, it's a mercy on us that we're able to grasp it. You know, the the day that I went to meet. Okay, so let me finish off. Other, I'm not going to get too many cases, but just to close, that there were other people who were saved who were. They had no idea what some of these guys were up to, but they may have met at a conference, for example, 
and I'm sure that you know it, surveillance people are taking photos of our meetings. Well, I know that because later on they show the photos. Who's this guy? Who's sure. that guy? Yeah. You know, and and many times it was like, no, this guy's not involved. This guy's not involved. A lot of people who just weren't involved because they didn't know what these guys were doing, and these guys were trying to recruit people, so they couldn't be overt about what they were about, right? Yeah. So, so uh, you know, for almost two years, you know, I'm doing these uh, these operations, and one day they say to me, Mubin, um, there are these guys, and they showed me the photos of all these guys, and they said, you know, we need to know what they're up, to, right? Um, and I'm just thinking if if they they didn't give me their names, so they were just identified as, excuse me, target one, target two, and so on. Okay. So they would. So when I when the Toronto 18 case came up, it was basically just showing me photos of these individuals. Uh, it became you know they were identified as target number one, two, and so on. And so there was a presentation going on by a brother, a very nice brother, who who was doing um, the counseling for Muslim prisoners. And there were a bunch of guys who were basically being detained on what was called a security certificate. It was done through immigration. Uh, and so the intelligence that's given doesn't have to be uh, shown, right? You know, it's different when it's, let's say, you're doing a public prosecution sure, where yeah. the evidence has to be shown. In this case, the evidence didn't have to be shown. So you could effectively detain somebody indefinitely based on intelligence that they could never see. Now, I mean, I have a problem with that, of course, but so did the Supreme Court of Canada, and it actually rendered security certificates unconstitutional. So it's it's a moot point now, but at that time, it was a big deal because these uh, several Muslim guys were caught up in yeah, this stuff. I remember, and, I remember. And they were being held, and, and, so, and so this became a grievance for these for these guys who were going, right, to, to see uh, this, this, this lecture by the brother. So basically, I was tasked to go and um, go to the lecture and find these guys and become friends with them and find out what they were about, okay? So, so subhanAllah, I'm sitting at the table by myself. There's like 20 other tables and people spread out throughout the place. Guy comes in wearing his, you know, shimar, kifiyah across his face. Wow. And comes and sits right down next to me. I'm the only one at my table, hmm. and and he comes and he says, "Salam alaikum wa salam," and he takes a scarf off, and lo and behold, it's target number two. And I said to myself, "Subhanallah, like they, they're coming to me. Like I didn't even have to do anything." Hmm. And then he told me about how his other friends were coming, so I thought, "Oh, probably it's going to be those guys who are on the whatever." And sure enough, it was the same guys that I saw on the photos, and they all came over, and this guy got up. So I took that, you know, since I'm already close to him, I got up, they moved to a bigger table. Uh, I looked at the one guy and I said, brother, I know you from such and such mosque. And I was actually just saying that, but it turned out that he knew me from that masjid. Wow. So that, that was a way for me, I think, to kind of get into the group initially. Mm -hmm. And then uh, after the, you know, so the lecture went on and, and, and then we went outside and then, then we started to have the conversation. You know, oh, brother, what are you doing here? And this and that. And this is when we started to become a little more friendly. This is when they started to recruit me to their group. And talking about ideology and grievances, 
the first thing he jumped to was, you see what the Americans are doing in Iraq, brother? You see what they did in Afghanistan? And I tried to kind of say, yeah, but, you know, I mean, you know, at least, alhamdulillah, Canada did not go into Iraq and participate with the Americans. And then he was just like, no, brother, they are allies to the Americans. So therefore, they're 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 fair targets. And I said, oh, what, like, what do you mean by fair targets? Like, yeah, well, brother, everybody says that, you know, because I was kind of downplaying it on one level as well. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah, brother, they're all everybody's talking about fighting and doing this and doing that, but you know, nobody's there in the end when it's time to step up. And then he then he said, brother, we are ready to step up. In fact, we have a bunch of guys. And I was like, really? Oh, and then I started to show some interest. And then, um, you know, there was a number of things that happened basically to establish my belonging in the group. So I basically, you know, made some superficial connection with them during the conference or at the lecture or whatever. But then afterwards, as we were talking a bit more outside, uh, we, I started to get more and more close to them until in the end, I mean, there were a number of things that happened, right? I don't want to, uh, like, for example, you know, I remember him saying, uh, what did he say? Uh, oh, he said, uh, if, you know, if CSIS came to my house, they know what I would do. And then he made a shooting gesture. So I said, oh, it's like that. Eh? So I, I took out my wallet and I have, a, I have a gun license, right? And so when I showed him that, his eyes opened up and he said, Poor guy. He says, subhanAllah, that Allah sends people like this to us. And I'm thinking to myself, man, it's not Allah who sent me. Well, in a way, it is Allah who sent me, but, you know, it was the spy. So it's, it's, not, it's not that Mubin is, is spying on Muslims. It's that Mubin is trying to thwart an actual terrorist attack that's being planned, and, and they're trying to execute it. Yeah, I mean, that was the, that was, I was going to get to that. Well, you're... because you know, people are like walking around saying, like you're like yeah. in, you're like an yeah. implant in the mosque, you know, just yeah. you don't like the khutbah, so you like call security services, like you know, get rid yeah, of this guy. See, and, <laughs> yeah, and, and and it just, I feel I feel sad for for people, you know, when they think like this because it's an insult to their intelligence, you know. It's it, I laugh because, you know, they're very smart the way they do things. I, I respect the way they do things. I really, um, you know the. And, and I'll, I'll close the Toronto thing for... Let me close the Toronto sure, thing. Sure, yeah. Can I do that way? Okay. Yeah. Because I, I need to be very... Uh, I'm very OCD. Like, um, the, the court. The court is what did this to me. You know, they were like, you have to be meticulous. Yeah, no, go ahead, know. man. Go ahead. Yeah. So so I became friends with them. Uh, I showed them the gun license. They basically, they became excited. I went over to the side. You know, I remember the brother saying to me... Um, or the guy, I keep saying brother, but you know, I'm not a sociopath, right? I know they made mistakes and they were up to no good and they got caught and you know, that's how things go. Um, so he says to me, uh, he goes, come here on the side, I wanna show you something. And I said, oh, I'm like, what, are you gonna rob me? Do I need to defend myself? And he's like, I don't know, can you dodge bullets? Wow, And okay. I was like, oh. And he got real serious and then he put his hand in his jacket, magazine release, pulls the magazine out and shows me his loaded magazine from his loaded gun, saying, like, look at my, these are cocular bullets. Okay? Wow. Like, we're serious, okay? Now, maybe in the U.S., not such a big deal, but in Canada, that's a big deal, right? Like, you carrying around a gun is, is a big deal, right? Yeah. Um, so, so, and then, 
then they said, brother, you know, they loved the fact that I had this military training. And they said, brother, and then they revealed everything. They said, brother, we have a training camp coming up. And we would love for you to come and train our guys so that we can conduct these attacks that we want to conduct. Hmm. And he had a map. He had a physical map on it. He opened up the map, pointed to the spot very quickly and closed the map. The Lord. But I had already taken my snapshot at that moment. And he said, basically, in this general area, we're going to have a training camp. Why don't you come up? And so now, effectively, I get invited to this training camp that's happening in about two weeks. Okay. Now, check this out. Two years later, in 2008, during one of the trials of the young offender, I learned through a court disclosure that CSIS knew about this 11 days before this meeting. Wow. And that's when and why they sent me in. They didn't even tell me. After all that, this is how they keep that information strictly yeah, they, they don't want to con contaminate you as well. They don't want to contaminate, right? And, yeah. and I respected that. I was like, excellent, because it validated my as my information. Yeah. So when I called them up and I said, um, these guys, because they didn't tell me anything, what these guys were up to, this and that. And when I call him and I say, um, these guys have a training camp plan and they want to bomb this place and they want to bomb that place. And they've invited all these guys up uh, to go to the camp and they want me to go and help them train. So this is when the CSIS guy said, okay, Sheikh, you need to come in. Uh, we need to have a conversation. And that's when he told me, this is now going to move over to the RCMP. Okay. And this is going to become a public investigation. And this is when I started to panic. Because now everybody was going to know that Mubin Sheikh was the spy. Now, I, you know, and let, let people take it how they will. I had by I had given by to share Sufi line, Chisti, Deobandi, and I said to him, I said, you know, I, I think I'm in a little bit of trouble <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, I'm I'm an undercover. I've worked with the intelligence agency, this and that, and we just found out about these guys who are doing these who are up to no good, who want to conduct bomb attacks in Canada, blah blah blah. And now it might become a public investigation, and I'm worried. Mm. And I'm worried that um, people are going to become upset. So he looked at me with furrowed brow and said, are you doing this for the people, or are you doing this for Allah? Ah, and I said, oh, right? He said, oh, yes, I'm doing it for Allah. Now remember, you know, when the Sahaba said to the Prophet, السلام, oh, Rasulullah, we love you. What did the Prophet say? He said, be careful because hardship is going to come on you like water flowing down, right? I didn't know it at the time, but man, I sure learned that lesson later. <laughs> so so effectively, you know, I was, and it was it was bad because even when, so, so, so the training camp happened. Uh, this is the end of 2005. The rest of the case continued on for the duration of 2006 more evidence being collected. And in 2006, all these guys get arrested, 18 individuals. Now there are court hearings that need to take place. And the way that we do things here is young people will get their hearing sooner than the adults will. Okay. So there were four young offenders and 14 adult offenders. 
the first youth preliminary hearing happened in January of 2007. After that hearing, now, I was, I gave the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me Allah. And the fact is, is that not all of them were hardcore Al-Qaeda terrorists sure. waiting to blow themselves up. I, I know the government wanted to give that story, that narrative, but I'm not there for the government's narrative, nor am I there for the Muslim community who is in severe denial, severe denial. I mean, it was, it's, it's, I look back on it, you know, I always, I, I smile and laugh a lot because I take it lightly. Right? Because, you know, I was with the, I was like the community at one level. Yeah. Whenever a, a story of somebody being arrested or blah, 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 you know, the theory, right? And, and I, always, I tell people too, you know, and I say this, you know, negatively, you know, the, the conspiracy thinking that people have, I'm like, you might as well change your kalima. You should say, La ilaha illa CIA wa Mossad Rasuli. Okay? That should be your view because and, and it's like a shirk you know you're giving the intelligence agencies such power yeah that Allah is a, apparently a passive billah, like it's just silly to me right mm. so so when they're when when people start when as soon as they hear and they hear because one of the myths that they promote in the community um, is the mere fact of an undercover the mere presence of an undercover equals entrapment. That's the argument. That's the line they use. Yeah. Because they don't want to. They don't want to believe that people do these things, and they can't accept the reality that the only way, because we believe we are people of evidence, as Muslims, and even living in the West, you, if you're gonna, you know, put somebody in a prison, you should bring forward evidence that can be tested, and so on. So. You know, uh, um, the fact that we can collect it. So the only way that evidence of secret criminal activity can be collected is through secret means. That's the only way. You Nobody is going to voluntarily admit that they're involved in a terrorist plot. Sure. They just don't do that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So so this is this was the thing that I was now that guy who was doing it. And, and I now saw that response by the community was complete denial. It was, you know, I, this is the one thing that I remain sad over because I remember the non-Muslim police officer when all this, when the community, so let me, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So in June, 2006, everybody got arrested. In July, I gave an interview on, I guess your equivalent of W5 or 60 minutes yeah we have a thing here called the fifth estate and what happened was now after the arrests happened right uh they took me to a safe house location and um and i'm basically watching the news coverage of the terrorism arrest and man oh man it became this huge thing and i even for a second asked myself is this the same case that i'm involved in because like they had a sniper on the roof of the courthouse Wow. And I thought to myself, okay, that's a little bit of an overkill here, right? I thought that at the time, but then I realized later that what if somebody wanted to commit a vehicle ramming attack on the court? How are you going to stop that car? You're going to stop it by putting a 50 caliber bullet through the motor, through the engine block. That's how. Right? So 
So, so in July, so what happened was the police were not, I was telling the police every day and I, and I, I accentuate this because I even said this in court every single day so that when I went and gave the interview to the media, I could say I did this because I told the police every single day, how come you guys are not saying thanks to the community for helping foil the plot? The answer was we had a, can I do this? We had a conservative government in power, frankly, anti-Muslim as far as I'm concerned, who had a, an agenda, who had a narrative that they wanted to push and promote. And that did not include giving any credit to the Muslim. So I took it upon myself. I said, now, actually, let's, let's do this. I phoned a brother, an imam, a sheikh, who I met in Syria, who was leaving Syria as I had just arrived to Syria. And he had spent years and years there. You definitely know him. And I called him up and I said, man, I'm in trouble. You know, um, big, you know, this Toronto case, this and that, I'm the guy, I'm the undercover. And he's like, whoa, okay, I'm going to put you in touch with a brother, good Muslim brother that we know, we all know. Um, um, just uh, falling out of my head there for a second. Ah, stuck in stuck. He's going to kill me for um, not uh, remembering his name. Um, oh, my God. Nazim Baksh. 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 Yeah, well, well, what happened was I gave the story to him, and and he investigated as well, right? Okay. His due diligence. Yeah, he's a good journalist. He's an excellent journalist. I mean, um, and uh, and he did his investigations, and surprise, surprise, everything that I said was true. In fact, he said to me, Mubin, you're going easy on this guy." Wow. So. So long story, uh, I, I give my story in the media. And what had happened actually is after the news of the arrests, the uh, IMO mosque in Toronto, a very well-known place, uh, had all their windows broken. Wow. All of their windows broken. I believe it was retaliation for this news that terrorism, blah, blah, blah. And this is why I believe that we need to be involved at this level to get ahead of these things. After I gave my interview, Allahu A'lam, I don't know if this is, I would like to believe it's the case. Maybe that's why I'm saying this. Not a single report of any anti-Muslim activity because of the case, because of the terrorism plot. No broken windows, no people yelling at Muslims, you damn terrorists, and now look what happened. Because now I stepped out in front and I said, I am the undercover. So obviously the government didn't like that at all. Because they felt sure. that I was compromising the case. But like I said, I don't care. I wasn't there for the government. I'm there for what? 
the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me Allah. So so I gave my talk, uh, my interview. Some information got released. That's when everybody found out, okay, this guy is the spy. And that's when all hell broke loose. Uh, this is when the, the conspiracy theories came out. The poor, the Muslim community dropped the ball. Because what you should have done, and what you should have done if you had some sense, is simply to say, ah, you see, there's our proof that Islam and Muslims are against terrorism. Alas, and just leave it to Mubin. He'll field all the questions. Yeah. No, they had to come out with their placards and they had to get out on their blogs and making articles and this organization writing this article and this one writing that article. And I'm thinking, subhanAllah, uh, you know, I came from the Dawah scene. If you, yeah. will. you know, I used to debate Christians all the time. Right? We're all about evidence and proofs. And now I'm watching the community and they're just burning everything. Did they roast they you? Have... Did they roast you for doing this? Sorry? Did the community roast you for doing this? Oh, did they roast me? Absolutely. I became a munafiq. I became a murtad to some. Uh, you know, the more extreme people were, they murtad. He's murtad. He's out of Islam. You know, the others who were saying he's munafik, but a munafik is not a Muslim anyway, right? So yeah, it's even worse. Basically making, <laughs> yeah, they're making takbir of me, right? And I thought to myself, man, it really hurt my heart when this happened. I knew the community was going to be upset. I certainly wasn't expecting them to throw me a ticker tape parade. But this, at least listen to the evidence. Yeah. And it's funny because these people, man, day one, they showed up with their flag because they knew the media was going to be there and whatever. And so they showed up with their signs and they're very clever. What they did is they associated themselves with the thing called the presumption of innocence project. I mean, who would be against the presumption of innocence? Sure. Right? Yeah. Everybody believes that. So they ally themselves. They associate themselves with a legitimate cause to effectively downplay the case yeah. to say that, well, well, we're assuming they're innocent. We're assuming they're innocent. And guess what happens when they're found guilty? Oh, no comment. Nowhere to be seen. We uh, <laughs> There were some, two imams in particular, who I remember them saying, they were on a video and they said, brothers, if these brothers are guilty, if they show any evidence that they are guilty, we call on the government to give them the maximum sentence. Oh? Wow. Because they were found guilty. Yeah. And some of them pled guilty. I didn't see you calling for the maximum punishment. Mm. Even some imams, you know, they all dropped the ball because they ended up looking so foolish. Foolish in the end. And I'll never forget that white cop who told me, seeing all this stuff that was happening, after what I had done, and you know, the way that they were seeing it is, obviously they're going to say, oh, you did a great job. You did a you know good for the community, for the country. I believe that, but it was also good for the case, obviously. But when he said to me, you see, Mubin, you see why we view the community the way we do? Wow. I had no answer for him. Wow. I felt, no I felt way, stupid. man. He said that? He said that. He said that. Wow. And, and was he wrong? No. Look, no, man, I've been, I've been roasted too. I mean, not, not nearly at the level uh, that you have, but, uh, you know, if you put your trust in the Western... English-speaking Muslim community, you have put it in the wrong place. Uh, they Brother, will, they will let, let you me. down and sell you out 
faster let than let me go beyond that <laughs> let me go beyond that i contemplated leaving islam no way i contemplated leaving islam i thought to myself how is it possible you know i had to break my bay'ah with that shaykh because when it became known that i was the undercover the other disciples just like oh he was a spy he was spying on us it's like i was what are you going to spy on a group of sufis doing zikr without without mentioning me. without mentioning names is this sheikh based yeah. in the west he's here in toronto yeah okay yeah. okay oh yeah yeah indian background whatever i we've known him we you know, very nice bro very nice sheikh so the other murids okay, like kind of excommunicated you man oh yeah i got excommunicated and and what i was really upset at is the sheikh knew that i was an undercover and he knew that i was i was not spying on our group <laughs> what are you guys planning that i would even be telling the government tell me that they don't talk about politics it's all reading from you know uh uh rumi and doing like dhikr of the of the names of allah and doing salawat durood and the prophet alayhi salam like what could you possibly report to the authorities that they would care so, so what upset me was that the sheikh could have told the murid he could have said no what he did was right because if you see something wrong you should tell him. you should don't you guys all say this oh if you believe if you know about criminal activity call the authorities that's what you say with your tongue and your lips but do you really mean that so how, how did you how did you hold on man you see oh, look look you see we don't live in a system where anonymous phone calls are sufficient for evidence. So mashallah, you Muslim organizations who are telling people if you believe if you know blah 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 you should call the FBI. Okay, nine people call the FBI saying that this guy's a terrorist. Is that good enough for court? No, it's not. Shouldn't you get eyes and ears verification of what they're doing? Yes, you should. How do you do that unless you do it with an undercover? Mm. So, anyways, uh so a lot of things happened, right? This the sheikh basically turning on me, and he didn't turn on me, but he just once the, they excommunicated me, I was like, "You could have told them that you knew that I was a spy, and that what these guys were doing was no good." In fact, brother, in fact, Allah, I brought two of the ringleaders to the dars of my sheikh, <laughs> who in who during the dars said. If you know people are up to no good and doing criminal things, call the police and let the authorities. In fact, I told the sheikh that I would bring these two. So please, sheikh, tell them something that would influence them. Mm, mm. You see, it didn't work in the end because remember, people and this is what they also took me to task on. They said, "Brother, why didn't you try to convince them?" Why didn't you counsel them? Why didn't you talk? Nasiha, yeah, nasiha, nasiha, nasiha. Right? Now, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm not a babysitter and I'm not a counselor. I'm an undercover agent. Okay, my job is not to to do that. But because I'm a Muslim, and I know that people are going to make this accusation, I tried to do things while the case was going on. Things which police didn't like. The police did not like. For example. We were in the masjid. We came out. There was a, I remember Hizbut Tahriri guy. They're giving out his pamphlet, and the you know Fahim, the ringleader, says, "Oh, you Khilafa guys. Yeah, all you do is make 
all you do is is give pamphlets you know you guys are not into actually doing anything and so there was another brother that i knew convert brother very nice totally against extremists and when he came over to talk to the ringleader i stepped aside and i walked away because i knew he was going to give him some nasiha some way to kind of yeah. uh you know counter his his thing so uh so i walked away nothing happened right they didn't listen um the the uh another time we were uh we were driving and we were driving and the guy basically got out of his car to take pictures of people that he thought were surveillance officers following him. Okay? Now, there were a number of these things to show you that, give you another example, Fahim, they got an actual veteran of the Afghan Jihad to talk to him, a fellow Pashtun, to say to him, young brother, go to school, take care of your family, leave this jihad stuff to the professionals. Okay? There were multiple, multiple chances that these guys got. Mm. You know, the second day that I met the guy, November 27, 2005, we're going around, like, I go to meet because I met them on the 25th. I told the brother, I got enough information. Uh, this is when the map opening thing, right? I said to him, brother, you know what? Let you and I meet together secretly so that nobody's watching us, basically. I met with him. I, I picked him up at his house. And subhanAllah, you know, once upon a time in 1996, I actually took a course called Surveillance Techniques. Okay? Wow. Don't ask me why. I thought it would be cool and fun. Um, and never used it, right, until that day when I realized and discovered, hey, there are cars following us. And I exposed all the cars that were following us, the make, the model, the license plate, the description of the drivers, to show him two things. One, that I was a very security-conscious guy and professional. And two, brother, what kind of heat is on you? Like, what are you involved in that they got five cars following you? Yeah, nothing, worked. To, nothing worked. He's, he's, nothing he's worked. He's set on his nothing ways. Nothing worked. Nothing worked. You know, I, I even thought there was this one brother who I really feel bad about because he was the only guy from the Toronto group who had met me in the context of being with our sheikh, right? He actually attended a dars with us and there was nothing, you know, illegal happening or extreme in the dars. So for him to see, okay, let me do this. I meet this brother at the dars and he's with us and this and that, everything is fine. Then I meet these guys, blah, blah, blah. And he tells me, brother, help us come train these guys, this and that. And then he tells me the night, uh, two nights before we were leaving, He's like, let's go meet at this masjid. And there's another brother who is also a trainer who is coming with us, who's going to meet with us. And who was it? That guy. That mm. same brother. Wow. So, you know, what do you do with that, right? So anyways, I'm... I'm so I want to go to this, you know, I was going to leave Islam, man. I did not realize. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I knew I that there was heat, but I did not know that it was that personal. I mean, what? how did you stay afloat? Yeah. So... So what had happened is, and, and let me do this again. Uh, so 2006, the arrest happened. I give my interview, all this, all the heat comes out. And then four years of court, okay? And this stuff is going on this whole time. So really, it was from after I gave the interview 
to after the initial youth preliminary hearing, which took place in January of 2007. Um, because in those six, seven months, my God, the things that people were saying about me, cursing me, you know, praying that, man, everything you can imagine was, mm. was being said, you know. Excuse me. I hope his wife divorces him. I hope he gets cancer. Oh my God. I hope he's found dead in a ditch. You know, like just all kinds of things, you know. And what what bothered me was, you know, like I mentioned, the non-Muslim basically saying to me, look, look at how your community is responding. Yeah. Right. And saying all these things about me. And I thought to myself, is this Islam? Is this Islam? Is it possible? Again, I didn't want to be arrogant to think that everybody is wrong and I am the only one that's right. Because that sounds stupid, doesn't it? When yeah. people do that, right? Yeah, yeah. But it turned out that that was in fact the case, that everybody else was wrong and I was the one that was right because I was the eyewitness. Hmm. And all these community members who made a complete fool of themselves, brother, there are people that will die on the belief that Mubin entrapped these people. They will die on this belief. There is nothing that will change their mind. Nothing. And... It's it's funny, you know, that the way okay, so let me let me explain. So I basically started to think, how is it possible that I have come to believe this 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 religion and I have participated in the community and done all these things and this is how they respond. Is is in fact are Muslims against terrorism? Is it just something they say so that people don't give them grief, but in fact they really don't mean it? Because look, they're attacking the methods in which you stop terrorists. They're attacking the actual guys who stop terrorists. So where is this Muslims are against terrorism part? Anybody can say they're against something. Hey, anybody can do that. But step up and actually walk the walk. Who's going to do that? So you so, came back to your core beliefs. That, that... So, so, so what happened is, you know, I, I went through a lot of struggle. Um, you know, I, uh, you know, there were other things that I'm not afraid to mention, you know, uh, uh, substance abuse, okay, that happened. I started drinking, okay? Like, I had gone through most of my life, okay, in my high school years, I might have had a few beers here and there. I wasn't really a drinker. But now suddenly I start drinking? You know, it, it was just, and, and what I saw was people now saying, oh, this, you're cursed by Allah. And I even, I was open about this, that mm. this happened to me. Because, uh, Allah is great. Because you know that ayah about, uh, 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 stand, you know, be witnesses for justice. Yeah. Even against the rich, mm -hmm. the poor, your family, even your own self. Yeah. So I thought to myself that if I'm giving, if I'm saying these things about these people that are going to get them prison time and whatever else, I'm going to be honest about me as well. Because I'm not here to portray myself as you know, the pious saint and the imam or whatever. I'm not none of those things, right? I wanted to be honest. And, you know, a little secret about it is maybe this is a little bit of the malamatia, you know? <laughs> okay. You know, this, you know, the outwardly doing things which people are like, oh, the beloved. But yep. internally and inwardly, these are actually very high-level things, which the common person is not going to understand. And, and later, and it showed me, Allah showed me 
where I sit now and where I am today, that I did the right thing. You know, that, that all of that gave me the credibility to do what I'm doing now. So let me just finish that, that last point about thinking about leaving Islam. And then what happened was, you know, I was in such a bad place. I was overwhelmed, you know, I was overwhelmed. There was nobody to support me. I mean, everyone was like, it was so funny because um, I asked my grandfather, even my grandfather, subhanAllah, you know, this is in my blood. My grandfather was actually a police officer in India oh, wow. who conducted undercover operations. Okay. He, talking about malamatiya and doing things outwardly, which is almost kufar, he went undercover as a Hindu pundit and seemingly worshipped idols in the temple so that he could get the confession from the chief priest who basically orchestrated a murder of a family. Wow. And, uh, he even got in the newspapers in those days, I think 1950-something, where he conducted a sting operation against alcohol smugglers coming from Portugal to India. Interesting. And, yeah, so I asked him, I said, uh, what piece of advice can you give me? Because now I got involved in this, you know, and he says, Mubin, he goes, you've done yourself a harm and a favor. The harm is that people will never look at you the same again. Mm. The, the benefit, though, is that your true friends will stick with you and the fake friends will run for the hill. And sure enough, that happened. You know, the people that you thought were your friends are gone. Interesting. Right. So, and it's okay. It was a, it was a way of weeding out, you know, the, the fair bad. weather friends. Yeah. And, and, and you know what, it was fine. And then eventually what happened is I said, you know what, I need to really reconnect. So I ended up going for Umrah and I went to Medina, I went to Mecca and I cried my heart out and, you know, I did everything that I was supposed to do. And, you know, I got back on, you know, I, I took a hit. Alhamdulillah. Happened, right? I took Alhamdulillah. a hit. And, uh, and then, you know, uh, and then it might, you might even went beyond, you know, it got even stronger. So, alhamdulillah, I connected with uh, the Naqshbandis now, finally. Um, and uh, I, I remember you know, telling, uh, well, another sheikh who definitely knows the uh, this topic very well, Sheikh Hisham Kabani, uh, who also caught a lot of flack for getting involved in this. And I'm bay'ah to his son, uh, Sheikh Noor Muhammad, uh, and who himself said to me, you know, we, I don't involve myself in politics. My father kind of got involved in that, and it didn't turn out too well for him. So That's an understa understatement. <laughs> What's that? That's an understatement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so that's how he framed it. And so um, basically, uh, you know, I remember telling Sheikh Hisham that, oh, Sheikh Hisham, you know, nobody likes me, you know, and everyone is like this. And he said, don't worry, time, time will, you know, change their minds. And I wanted things to speed up, um, mm. but you know, obviously, time did uh, change things. I think uh, because so. Let me kind of just go through this. So, Alhamdulillah, you know, I, I reconnected, um, and uh, I realized that in fact, this is a test from Allah, right? And to see that was my iman in my standing in the community when the mm. Sufis say. Praise should not elevate you and curse should not denigrate you. It's easier said than done. Wait until people start doing web pages against you and on, you know, their platforms writing against you and then tell me how you feel and where your ego is. Right? And it was, alhamdulillah, a great, great 
test for me and training for me because this really taught me that it, what to have tawakkul in Allah and to have iman in Allah alone because people will come against you if Allah comes against you you're finished you are finished yeah. Allah gives honor to whom he wills and he debases and dishonors whom he wills and in that beginning I did feel debased and dishonored uh, but it was a trial that I had to go through Alhamdulillah I got up Allah picked me up Allah decided that I'm not done yet with you uh, and so I went through the court case talking about saving people again of the four young offenders three of them got off of their charge okay good during the trial of the one young offender who remained uh, who went on to be prosecuted the Un Allah's Allah. Okay, I'll, I won't say too much because this some of this stuff is a little too much for some people. It's I'm talking about, you know, I started to really connect with the Shiyu. Okay, um, okay, I'll say this. I swear by Allah that everything I'm going to tell you is the truth. If I'm lying, may Allah throw me in the deepest pits of hell. By Amin. I started to connect. I started to do dhikr with the sheikh, through the sheikh. Every day I would go to the courthouse in the, you know, uh, armed escort to the courthouse. Wow. I would read Surah Yasin. I knew people were out to get me. And I mean, sihr, magic. Mm. I remember the day that a lady, because sitting directly in front of me was always the police officer. And one day, and there were other spaces on the bench, but this lady came and sat right in front of me. And I knew enough, I know enough about these topics that this lady was trying to do magic. So there was a whole other level. Okay, Now, Allah, Allah. So what started to happen is, I don't know how to explain it, but there was heavenly assistance being given to me. The lawyer says to me the lawyer starts to speak and i can see i don't i don't know how to explain this i can see his sentence that he's about to say and so i finish the sentence for him and he looks down on his paper and he's like how did you know i was going to ask you that question interesting like, well, what if i told you i could read minds and then he was like can you i'm like i can't talk about that you know it was a joke in the court, mm. okay? How this guy thought I could read mine. Mm. Okay, number two, the the shit, the the prosecutor. Now, Allah, I didn't even know in a way what I was saying. The prosecutor, there were two prosecutors, woman and uh, woman and uh, man. I was saying to the female, I said, you know, the lawyer that gets up to attack me, I am going to see to it that. That lawyer trips. But because I am not allowed to harm anybody in my amal, I won't cause, I won't uh, uh, ask for that lawyer to fall down and get hurt. Okay? Now, that's what I put out. Now, the this is the two crown attorneys, the court prosecutors, right? Female and male. And I'm saying this about the lawyers. And I'm thinking the defense lawyer. And what happens now, I'm in court for the young offender, and unbeknownst to me, while I've been outside of the court, 
the prosecutor or the government declares me a hostile witness because I'm not giving him what he wants to hear, right? And basically, even, even though you're on their side, even though I'm on their side, right? Because they have an agenda and a narrative. That's insane. Okay. And, and I'm not there for that, right? Mm. So look at this. I have to eat black from the Muslim community that I'm a sellout and blah, blah, yeah. blah, this and that. And then I'm also eating it from this side, saying mm. that, oh, this guy's lying. So what happens is he declares me a hostile witness and basically says that I am lying to protect the young offender. So, of course, the, you know, the naysayers in the Muslim community hear this and they say, oh, they're, look at that. They're accusing him of lying. Mm. Well, therefore, how can we believe anything that he's saying? It's mm. like so stupid because it's like I'm accused of lying to protect the young offender. So when that prosecutor gets up to come towards me, he trips. No he way. No way. And the, the lady prosecutor looks at me like, and I winked at her. Okay? Wow. Last, last story. Uqsumbillah. Everything I'm saying is true. I'm in a room, no window. I have two armed guards, police officers with me. The court case has gone on. The lawyers are arguing motions through the day. It's after lunch now. I look up and I can see through the walls. All right? That's it. Mubina has gone mental. People are looking at this thing. Okay, it's getting crazy. I can see through the walls that the court has sent the court officer to come down and fetch us. Hmm. So I start to gather my belongings, I put them under my arm, and the cop says to me, Sheikh, where are you going? I said, oh, the court officer is coming down the hallway to fetch us. And so the cop looks at the other cop, he's like, guy's mental. No, he doesn't say it, but he looks. And then suddenly, knock, 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 the door. And the guy's face went white like a ghost. When he opened it, it was the court officer. So this is where I found myself. Okay, mm. I'm I'm experiencing I don't know what to call them. Karamat. Mm. I'm stuck through law. I'm not. I shouldn't even use that word because I'm not at that level. But Allah decided to help. Allah felt sorry for me. Maybe I don't know how to phrase it, but He really protected me because in the subsequent prosecutions, I never had a bad day in court. Never, mm -hmm. not one bad day. So long story short, uh, four, three of the young offenders got off. Uh, um, four of the adults, of the 14 adults, had their charges stayed against them, meaning the court, the prosecution, and the, 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 the crown attorney decided not to prosecute them anymore. Why? Because I'm the fact witness, because I'm not giving them, the government, what they want. Yeah, they just want to throw them all guys. in jail, and you're like, well, no, I mean, right. they're not all so, the same. In the end, out of 18 who were arrested, seven had their charges stayed due to my sympathetic testimony. Go. So, so when all this stuff that people say, at the end of the day, they, I have to laugh. I have to be merciful at one level and understand that, look, they just don't know what they're talking about. Right? It's as simple as that. And I have had people... To this day who try to question me and i asked them brother did you spend one day in court no you got all your research from media articles that were written right hmm. so and you have imams who were even you know they i don't know what happened it's something like whether they felt the need to say something when these arrests happened because 
you know, but every single one of them made a fool of themselves. They made a fool of themselves. And so, Nazim Baksh, alhamdulillah, because he actually investigated this, was able to say to people, uh, no, in fact, there was all these things going on. Right? So... So Mobin, so, we've yeah. we've been speaking for a long time, and and judging by judging by this, I think we can keep going. So what I wanted to do is, if it's all right with you, if we if we if we park it here for part one, I think we're definitely going to need a part two. Okay. But the last yeah. thing I want to ask you is, um, you don't have to answer this in any substantive way, but like, where are you now? If people, I mean, I I enjoy all of your posts and. Uh, I stay informed in the extremist world uh, through a lot of the content that you put out and that Muhammad uh, Rahim puts out, who's also a friend. He's also been on the podcast. Yeah. So, you, you know, you, you, when I, whenever I want to know what the pulse, you know, I turn to you guys. But what are you doing now, right now? Uh, and then maybe we can meet maybe like in a month or so for part two. Yeah, what we'll do in part two is talk about what happened after the case, right? Because in 2010, the case was done. And then I became a public person with account, you know, Facebook, Twitter. And then by 2011, 2012, the fighting in Syria occurred and the whole ISIS mobilization. And so I got online. I started to, you know, interact with all these ISIS guys and do counter ISIS stuff. And they did that from, you know, 2011, 2012, right to 2017. This is a period when there was a lot more involvement with the U.S. government, U.S. military in particular specifically on um, you know fighting isis we can talk about that and then we'll talk about uh you know now i'm, I'm a i'm part of uh, parents for peace uh which is an organization uh, made up of uh parents who have been inter affected affected by extremism in one way or another mm. um the the founder marvin uh, <clears throat> uh bledsoe you'll really appreciate his story his son uh, who shot up the Arkansas in Arkansas? He conducted a shooting attack on a military facility or a recruiting station, killing one soldier, wounding another. The convert brother went to Yemen, studied Arabic, you know, became involved in extremist mentality. Uh, came back to the U.S., conducted their attack, and so. Well, maybe so we can, maybe we can bring him on if we're going to do a well, part he's, two. He's in prison for life now, so he's uh, probably not going to be. Okay. okay. Yeah. But the father, for sure. I mean, he could be. But that's what Parents for Peace uh, is about. That's the organization that I belong to now. Um, no government funds. I want to make that clear. No government funds. Because, I mean, and there's an ongoing debate. Like, I never believed from the beginning that a government-driven, top-down counter-extremism program is going to work. It has to come from the community. Mm. Uh, in Canada, we have a different dynamic. You know, we... We don't, it's not like the U.S., right? Like, we, we have a different dynamic. And a lot of Muslim organizations are doing stuff on their own without the government needing to tell them to do it. Uh, there's no, you know, like, uh, strings attached. Uh, that's the main thing, I think. So P4P is based in the U.S. Um, it is to raise awareness. It is to, uh, you know, help government create a way, mechanisms to help young people who are caught up in this sort of stuff. Uh, we work with, we have on our staff, like my, my colleagues, uh, ex-white supremacists who are now involved in this stuff. And maybe those are some, you know, um, guests you could have, who knows. Arnold Michaelis is a guy who was like, for years and years, a very well-known guy, uh, white power skinhead. Uh, Chris Buckley is a great guy to have on. A veteran of uh, Afghanistan, hated Muslims, still has the tattoo kafir on his arm. Wow. Okay? He's, he's going to get rid of it, of course. 
but he was a very anti-Muslim guy. And uh, Arnold was working on him to get him out of the KKK. He was a very, he was the top security guy of the KKK in the U.S. Okay. Whoa. And talking with me, you know, him meeting people like me, knowing that in fact, no, listen, a lot of us are doing counter extremism stuff, hmm. this and that. This is what Islam really teaches. So now, you know, he's on our side, right? We converted him, if you will. Um, so this is what we're doing. These are the kinds of people that we're working with. Um, secretly, we're trying to defund Homeland Security. We can say that, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, you know, it's a, it's basically to create off-ramps for young people who get caught up in this stuff, who might probably don't need a 10-year prison sentence, who probably just need some counseling, some support, mm. and, and those sorts of things. So that's what we're trying to include and incorporate into that machine um, that is that is you know doing it, its thing, right? Which it's gonna do. Alhamdulillah. Well, Mobin, thank you so much for the time. Uh, being authentic, genuine. Uh, I find this this was riveting. I, I could have gone on and on, but I don't think people are going to listen past like two and a half, three hours. So we'll, we'll have a part two. I wrote down some notes for the part two offline. I'll email you uh, maybe some potential times and we can get together if that sounds good later in the summer. Indeed. One more thing before you tune out. To help me stay focused and manage all the things I'm doing, I put together a weekly email called Friday Ruminations that highlights what I'm reading, working on, and thinking in four focus areas. Happiness, entrepreneurship, books, and Islam. If you'd like to receive these emails, which are 100% free, please go to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday to sign up. 